Hail, hail, gentle listeners. This is David Blakesley welcoming you to episode 88 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. Our object of discussion today is Roman Polanski's 1971 adaptation of The Tragedy of Macbeth, a play written by William Shakespeare some 414 years ago, I guess now. A pretty towering classic of English literature, really of world literature. It's it's just an amazing, rich, resonant text that uh, continues to inspire and really even project dread <laughs> into all corners of contemporary civilization. Uh, Shakespeare's insights into the darkness of the human condition and our helplessness against the forces of fate and ambition and covetous desire uh, just continues to, to connect with audiences uh, in in uh, whatever context they live. Uh, Macbeth casts a very long and dark shadow. So I'm very excited to get into this uh, pretty deep and fascinating subject matter. Of course, we'll keep our focus on the particular film of Roman Plansky, made in 1971, pretty pivotal film in his own career, and he himself, of course, is quite the object of consideration as well. So uh, the structure of this episode is going to be a little bit different, and I'm not even sure exactly how it's going to turn out at the end, but I've got, uh, just for scheduling purposes, we've got kind of two segments. Uh, I'm going to be recording this one right now and another one later on today. Uh, I'll introduce my guests in a moment, but um, what I'm contemplating is kind of editing the sequences together so that... uh, It'll sort of almost sound like we're all having a big group conversation, even though we're going to be doing it in, in two different parts. So let's talk with our first guest. This is the morning crew here. Uh, welcoming back Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, David. Um, morning crew. Uh, you, you might be able to hear it in my voice. Uh, I have a cold. Oh. I hope it's a cold. <laughs> um, but I'm feeling well. Just a little deeper voice today. So that's why I do it in the morning. Makes me sound yep. a little more sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, a little more gravitas there. Right? <laughs> and my, our other uh, traveling companion this morning is Derek J. Power. Derek, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Yes. Uh, yes, I, I like the radio-friendly voice effect that comes with going up in the morning so that that works out yeah yeah, a little congestion a little sleepies it kind of gives it that base profundo right (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) excellent all right guys well it's really great to have you with me um this is an episode that certainly created a lot of interest. Uh, our other two guests, William Remmers and Brad McDermott, like I say, will be joining us in the evening here. But uh, I guess I just want to start. We're going to structure this episode in what I've kind of considered a five-act sequence. We're going to start by talking about Macbeth, the the play, the phenomenon. Kind of already led into that a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about Roman Polanski. We always like to talk about the directors. And this is actually a kind of a, a, a relatively rare opportunity. We've not really covered Polanski in the past podcast yet uh, and we won't really have another chance to do so for a while uh, because I think Tess is the only other film after this of Polanski's that Criterion has the rights to and that's like a 1980s production I think uh, maybe late 70s I can't remember now but anyway like 79 or 80 yeah it's right on the cusp there yeah of the, the decade so um, but we will talk about Polanski because there's some things to be said about him and then we we'll get to the film itself and we'll talk about a few other you know related bits towards the end there. But um, Trevor, let me kind of give you a chance to, to uh, open this up. You know, I think you've done some extensive studies of Shakespeare. It seems like we've had some conversations about that in the past. Uh, tell me just a little bit about your kind of opening take on Macbeth. Uh, what's your experience with the play, with the text, uh, and with just the story of this uh, 
cursed Scottish nobleman whose uh, ambition drags him into dangerous territory. Oh, thanks, David. I love Macbeth. It's one of my favorite uh, pieces of art out there. <laughs> you know, if you can uh, extending beyond, uh, you know, even its own its own uh, format as a play or you know an adaptation or something like that. I just think it's an amazing uh, text about um, you know power and ambition and the and self justification. Um, and all kinds of things that are just so much so much fun to look at. And so, you know, my own experience with it has always been pretty positive. I remember when I was, um, I don't know, in junior high or something like that, uh, having one of my friends reading it for another class. And I just remember him telling me about it. And I was so excited to, to go and read it. And, you know, the first time I read it, I, I didn't know anything that was going on, didn't, didn't get it at all. Um, and so it, it took me a while, you know, as, as I think for, for most plays, to start digging out some of the nuggets. You know, it took me a while, first off, to even know what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the years, I've, I've watched a, a bunch of different adaptations on stage. Um, and it, every time, every time I feel like it's new, every time I feel like it's fresh, it's never something where I watch it and think, oh, well, they just did the same thing again. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so, it's so interesting. I think we'll get into that, but, um, uh, but yeah, but one of my favorite experiences, uh, over the past, you know, few years I used to do, it, it's, it's been a few years now, but I used to meet with, um, some people in our, in our community. They were mostly, um, older women in their 60s. It kind of came from a library group uh, to read Shakespeare. They wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. They each kind of said that, hey, you know, we've been uh, kind of out of this world for 40 years. You know, we've never gone back to read Shakespeare. The last time we read him was in school. We'd kind of like to get back into it. And um, we read Macbeth, and I think everybody except for one of the women really liked it. And that one woman said, you know, I'm, I prefer much ado about nothing. <laughs> this one's yeah. a little bit too dark for me. And I oh, said, then, then certainly understood, you know, that's your, you're right. But it was a lot of fun to go over this stuff with them. So looking forward to talking more about it with you guys today. Excellent. Yeah. That's a, that's a great summary. Derek, tell us a little bit about your uh, fascination with Macbeth. Uh, well, funny enough, I remember reading the play in high school and uh, and then interestingly enough, after we had done after we were done reading the play, we actually watched Polanski's take on okay. afterwards. Good. So, uh, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, I, I definitely find the play and actually Shakespeare in general fascinating. He's I mean, I think the reason why he's remembered and still performed after many centuries at this point is because he two things one um his language is is beautiful but the the key aspect is uh he really taps into the human condition and macbeth certainly taps into the human condition with uh again with ambition and pursuit of power and the intersection of fate and free will and there's just there's just a lot of rich ideas that are there and also the atmosphere and the emotion is just so palpable and and uh, so visceral and so yeah yeah no that's right so so your your viewing of polanski's film was your first kind of uh, 
maybe portrayal other than reading the text of this of this yes. play then. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think the, the I think the movie did kind of go on to serve that f- function because it is a very well well realized adaptation of the classical text whereas some of the other films that were in existence, you know, earlier on either took more liberties or uh just weren't as well constructed, well performed as this one. And it, you know, and we'll get into the film discussion in a bit, uh, but it does take some liberties with with uh, Shakespeare's text as well. It does change some things, so it's an interesting choice to become sort of the de facto "Here's Macbeth" on film. Uh, although I think it functions very effectively in that regard as well. It just changes perhaps a little bit of of the the, the of the viewers. Uh, at least first impressions of what Shakespeare had going on there. So, yeah, let me let me amplify my my own thoughts on Macbeth a little bit too, because I really do believe, as I've already kind of alluded, that this this is one of those kind of towering epics of of, of Shakespeare. Even though it's it's the briefest of his tragedies, and uh, you know he wrote so many plays that cover such a broad range of of. Um, you know, just kind of moments of life or of or, or of feelings. You know, they, you know Trevor mentioned you know, Much Ado About Nothing, the the witty comedy and the you know the battle of the sexes and a much more of a lighthearted thing. You think about a Midsummer Night's Dream, a kind of a mythological romp uh, with all kinds of fun. I've 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 done some public readings of that text just because it's such a delight to kind of frolic around and and get caught up in this uh, fantasy world that he portrays. Of course, there's Hamlet. You know, the big blockbuster. The the, you know, the the you know, the the another another pinnacle of sorts, but Macbeth really does have this kind of unique status. Uh, certainly, there are other uh, Shakespearean plays that get into grim violence and and horrors and and the darker side of of human nature, but but Macbeth just you know it's atmosphere. Uh, obviously, it's it's uh, very quotable. Uh, there's all kinds of great one lines and terms and and riffs that maybe we'll we'll play with as we go along and uh you know there's there's just an endless fascination and yet there's also this kind of aura of dread you know there's the supposed curse you know you're not supposed supposed to say the name of the play while you're in the theater and and uh you know even in some of the supplements it's it's talked about how difficult it is to recruit actors to be a part of these productions, you know, Trevor, I don't know. You mentioned that you'd seen several productions. Have you ever uh, looked further into that whole you know, the difficulty of mounting a production of Macbeth or the reluctance of actors to get themselves involved? Um, you know, what, what what do you know about that sort of background or that that uh, kind of that mysterious aura or reputation of doom and gloom that that surrounds the play? I, I I've definitely heard of the Macbeth curse. It seems like most of the productions have a bit about that in their you know playbill. <laughs> um, yep. But but it it always it, it seemed like a little bit of a lark, and the the mm-hmm. actors might talk about it afterwards with you, and you're discussing it with them. But for the most part, I've always found them to to just you know well these are the actors who did it, uh, and so they must have treated it somewhat like a superstition that they didn't believe in and had more fun with it than any kind of um, any kind of dread. Uh, but I have heard of, uh, of a few um, when I was in London who did kind of take it seriously. They would not say the name of the play <laughs> outside of the performance, <laughs> yeah. and um, and I thought that was interesting. Uh, but for the most part. My my probably limited experience, you know, not ever being yeah. someone involved in the production itself, is that I'm I'm I've always dealt with people who 
didn't take it too seriously, but knew about it because it's, you know, several hundred year old um, curse at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so they mostly had fun with it and told it like as little, little stories to get uh, theater goers interested in some extra entry, you know, build the mysterious sense of the witches or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are ghosts among us and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. I, you I, guys I, are in I, danger yeah. just for being here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the doors are bolted once you're in the theater. Nobody will be allowed to leave. Derek, you have any <laughs> thoughts along, uh, just along the, the, uh, the play's reputation or uh, just kind of that, that sort of dangerous, uh, menacing <laughs> vibe that it projects? Yeah, I, I was definitely aware of, of the, the curse of the Scottish play. And I guess for me personally, I'm just, I just, I know it and I kind of have fun with it. It's just, it's just another thing to add to the, the tapestry of the play. Just like with, just like when any work of art accumulates a lot of additional things just to, just to give it a little bit of a, of a character uh, to it. So yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and, and transition to our discussion about Roman Polanski. This was his follow-up to Rosemary's Baby from 1968. Uh, and it was, of course, uh, probably even more notoriously the first film he made after the horrific murder of his wife, Sharon Tate, who was pregnant with their child while he was out of town. I think he was over in England, actually, when all of these things occurred. Uh, of course, the Manson family and and even the recent film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, we could we could probably go down all of those rabbit trails. I don't really want to rehash the the, the horrors of that particular event as much, but it, it does you know weigh heavily in Polanski's story as as a kind of a noted auteur, uh, really kind of a celebrity director at this time. He was he was pretty popular, pretty embraced by the youth culture, um, and. Uh, you know, he he had this singular focus of just wanting to continue making films, uh, despite the really awful situation that he had to deal with and the circumstances that uh, he had to somehow you know grapple with and and then move on and and figure out what where to go in his in his life and his career afterwards. Uh, so so we can talk a little bit about that. We also just need to acknowledge the legal issues surrounding Roman Polanski, the fact that he cannot travel really to the United States or really, you know, very much else outside of Europe, uh, a few countries where he's relatively safe from extradition because of a uh, because of a situation that he got himself involved with after the filming of this of uh, of this Shakespearean play. He um he was involved in a situation where apparently he supplied drugs and, and had sex with a underage woman. I think she was 13 or 14 at the time. Uh, there was a legal proceeding, a plea bargain had been struck, and then he was alerted to the fact that the judge was not going to let him off without serving some prison time. He absconded, fled to Europe, jumped bail, and has never really faced the full weight of the justice system for this deed that he acknowledges that is pretty much, it, it, did, it did happen, there's no controversy around that, but he's been able to evade the U.S. law. And that's just created this massive elephant in the room type of a thing where uh, a lot of people write off Polanski uh, as a human being, uh, even as a director, even uh, to the point of dismissing the significance of his films. It's it's not necessarily a path I'm going to go down. Certainly I can recognize the 
unforgivable aspects of his behavior. And, um, you know, all, all of those things are there. And I just kind of wanted to throw that out there, you know, because Polanski is also a brilliant filmmaker. And, and this disc really shows some of that talent and some of that personal charisma that made him kind of a, a, a celebrated figure, uh, in particular among youth culture and the counterculture of the time. So, you know, um, I've spoken a little bit of my piece. Uh, do either of you guys want to jump on that and just talk about your assessment of Polanski? And you can take it whatever direction you feel led to, to speak. Well, I think in general, my, my attitude is that the art is important. And if, if the art holds up, that's really what should matter. And also at this point, I don't expect any artist to be a saint. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, you know, we've and and also each and every one of us has our bad moments where we where we've where we've operated less than optimally and so forth. And I think whatever issues that someone may have need to be addressed appropriately. So in the case of Polanski, um, I really think that those legal issues need to be addressed in a court of law and that needs to be settled that way if if it could ever be settled at all but until then i think i think he can be rightfully judged for those specific actions but to take it beyond that and say oh i can't ever watch his films ever again i can't acknowledge i think it's a great disservice because uh, he he is incredibly talented and and i think his uh, the fact that we still watch his films and still are affected by his films i think is a great testament to that so 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 yeah it, um i definitely don't deny what he did but i don't use this as something against him that oh he's just this terrible thing and therefore he should be non-existent and all that, all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Well, and here we are, you know, we, last time we got together was to talk about straw dogs. Thanks. Mm. David. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know how to pick them there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I have a harder time than I used to, you know, Derek, I'm on your same page as far as the way that I behave but more and more, I start to wonder if I'm just rationalizing myself, you know, my, my decisions to continue to engage with uh, the films of someone like Roman Polanski. Um, I used to feel like I had a pretty good handle on it and could separate the art from the artist. And I get all those arguments, but I'm not as comfortable as I used to be in making them. And, and mm. maybe that's the best place for me to leave it, because clearly here I am to talk about uh, what I, you know, someone that I also think is a pretty brilliant filmmaker. I haven't watched any of his films for about the last decade, or any of his new films for about the last decade, but, you know, I, I, I do really enjoy so much of what he made in the 60s and 70s and um, you know, even even up to I think the last one that I actually saw was the Pianist. I mm -hmm. don't know if I saw anything after that. Um, no, I saw Oliver Twist as well. Um, you know, I I I value his contribution to cinema, um, but I, I I do start you know, especially over the last few years, start to wonder if um, if I'm just deluding myself a little bit. Uh, not to judge anybody, because uh, I don't. I don't have much more to say than that. I just yeah. don't know where I am or where I'm going to land or what's right and wrong in this argument because it's been made so much more murky for me. I I don't feel like I have a good handle on it anymore. 
Um, but I, you know, I think it's undeniable that he does know how to put together a film and he's <laughs> yeah. created some, um, amazing film, um, that it, it's usually quite disturbing, psychologically disturbing, um, provocative in ways that I'm, you know, interested in exploring in, in ways that I find, um, you know, not gratuitous, not, um, there just to stick his finger in my eyes or anything like that. Um, but do come from maybe some of his other experiences in life, you know, the murder of his wife, um, or his time in, in, in childhood as, you know, in, in world war two in, in camps and, and, and going through the, the, the murder of his, uh, friends and family, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of stuff, his, his perspective is one that I find very unique and kind of, you know, because of that, valuable and maybe maybe also is a reason that I don't write him off um, as quickly as I might would, you know, any of these other act, uh, directors who turn out to be uh, absolutely unforgivably reprehensible in their actions and, you know, probably should stop working. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, just kind of my, my two cents there that aren't, worth uh too much other than <laughs> yeah i just yeah. don't know anymore well yeah. it is it, it's it's really complex and I, I i shared the kind of ambivalence and and the struggle that both of you are have articulated very well because you're right the more you sort of build the case as to why polanski should be important and continue to be considered you almost inevitably end up downplaying the severity of the you know, criminal act that he he conducted. Um, you know, Derek, I, I certainly understand that we don't expect our artists to be saints, but, you know, child rape and coerced right. sex from a point of, of power and privilege upon a, 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 a really a pubescent young girl, whatever her affect may have been, whatever her supposed consensuality or how mature she was, et cetera, et cetera, or even the fact that in some cultures that's a an appropriate, or it's a considered an appropriate age to you know, have those types of relations uh, you know, with a, a young woman or a young person in general. I mean, that's you know these are these are hard, dark uh, ethical considerations, uh, in which we really don't want to have to compromise according to our own standards. Uh, and yet, I, I you know you you alluded to uh, Trevor uh, Polanski's upbringing in the chaos of of World War II and the post war era. Uh, where you know you could you could almost understand a, a person's amoral approach to life that it, it really is an exercise of raw power and who's in control and if you're powerful enough you can just get away with anything and and how that may have even fed into a certain degree of decadence uh, on his own part on his personal sense of what he was entitled to, um, living in a in a fairly promiscuous society and, and you know, Hollywood and uh, all of that. I mean, it's you know, again, that's not my lifestyle. Uh, my way of life is a much more <laughs> modest and conservative and you know, ordinary uh, you know, domesticated way of living. Um, he had he was in circles that I don't travel in, and things lead to you know others and 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 so on so uh in a in a way i'm i'm feeling like a bit of an outsider judging someone who you know whose experiences of life are just incredibly different from mine and yet we we are all allowed to have discretion and and to exercise a degree of discernment over 
who we choose to admire, who we choose to celebrate and all of that. So, uh, yeah, he's created some pretty powerful work. I think some of that psychological disturbance and that ability to open up the more uh, troubling aspects of our minds, our hearts, our motivations is kind of inextricably linked to, you know, the way he's lived and the things that he's been through. Um, he can create images and, and, and impressions and, and even sensations, feelings, uh, that none of us given a, a similar budget and opportunities would be able to produce. And it's because he's, he's lived the life that he has. And so we, uh, we sit there and we contemplate, I mean, going back to even Shakespeare and, and the fact that this man, this, this person in England, and I'll dismiss all the conspiracy theories was able to such, you know, so brilliantly, uh, convey so many different aspects of, of, kind of human behavior and psychology in in ways that are almost like the epitome you know what's the tragic love story romeo and juliet what's the you know quintessential story about you know faded glory and old age king lear what's the uh, what's the you know the peak uh portrayal of somebody who's ambivalent and paralyzed by their conscience uh well that's hamlet you know so 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 many mountain peaks uh, of of uh of insight and brilliance from Shakespeare's pen and Macbeth takes us into some of the more sinister territories. So we've covered a little bit of Macbeth. We've covered a little bit of Polanski. Let's get into Polanski's version of Macbeth. Um, yeah, I, this is a, this is a pub, uh, a production by Playboy, uh, magazine. Hugh Hefner was the primary, uh, capital provider for the uh, the investment in this film, the Playboy magazine, of course, had been, you know, quite a sensation in the fifties and sixties. And as we were just turning the brink into the seventies, uh, Hugh Hefner decided to take some of the proceeds from his media empire and get into the movie business. And uh, you get a little bit of glimpse of Hef and his scene, uh, his entourage, uh, in some of the supplements here. Uh, so that's kind of one of the more disarming things when you you know you see the initial screen credits scroll on. Um, so there's a little bit of a background there. And again, a, bad, a kind of a, a sense of the circles that Polanski was traveling in and, and the, the, the money and influence behind that. Even even though Playboy is, is uh, prominently featured in the credits, this isn't sort of a, you know, um, leering, uh, winky, uh, softcore porn version of, of, of Macbeth or anything like that. It's uh, not Caliglia. No, <laughs> not <laughs> its reputation might lead you to think that sight unseen. I would, Maybe. I would think, yeah. At the time, that must have been to a certain portion of the audience, maybe even a little bit of a draw, but then perhaps a, a bit of a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm just thinking even, you know, uh, before I saw this version, I always heard about Lady Macbeth walking around in the nude and how explicit mm -hmm. it is and, and, and all of that. But it's pretty I, mild, it's, really. Yeah. yeah, it's not, you know. And I think, you know, Polanski's defense is like, well, that's how people slept back then. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, nightgowns i think have been a thing for a long time too especially up in scotland it's not like it's exactly balmy up there right but in any case um so you know so what let's let's just start with some of uh, the more interesting aspects um polanski did film this over in the uk and wales not exactly up in scotland but he had some pretty good location shooting he also very intentionally went with a young cast and that was considered kind of an innovation which uh, some of the critics at the time appreciated but seemed to generally fall uh upon unresponsive 
eyes. You know, they, they didn't necessarily, I'm thinking of some of the contemporary reviews that I read, where this film was considered a bit of a failure originally, at least in certain circles. And I don't think it did great commercial business. Uh, so, you know, I don't think there was a real strong track record of Playboy Productions creating more films, at least not of a, sort of a serious art quality of this sort. I know they got to video later on, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, just maybe some of your opening impressions on on this version. Well, Derek, let's let maybe give you a start, because this is this was your first exposure visually to Macbeth. Uh, what did you think of the film as a young person, and maybe what, what's your thoughts on the revisit? Um, well, I, I, was, I was definitely attracted to the visceral energy just just the whole atmosphere of it which is so dense and palpable and, and it's funny that when i first saw it, it of course it was it was on vhs and we had a little ctr television and so but it, it, it still was quite powerful and then and then a couple then s- several decades later uh getting it on criterion blue and 4k restoration and and so forth um it's interesting that there's still that there's even with the clarity that that format presents in there's still that there's still that dark dreadful atmosphere that that comes through so i'm i'm glad that that's that's retained even even with the uh, format upgrade um but yeah it, it's kind of how i would how i imagined it reading the text and and it, it certainly um it certainly feels like a very real place and real situation. And yeah, just, just very, very palpable. Um, I guess I want to point out a little bit about the, the casting of it. Um, and, and I know that that was a big deal to, to cast the Macbeths younger instead of older. I can understand the rationale both ways. Um, the, the older approach being that if you have someone who for a long time was, respected very well by the king and yet still is kind of second fiddle and not really giving his due and it's kind of like well the only way i can really make something of my life if, if i have to do regicide in order to really fulfill my ambitions then so be it um but actually, yeah, the idea that time is running out so you better make exactly all you can mm-hmm. yeah we all, we all have our hour to fret upon the stage and so and i have <laughs> nothing to show for it right. but um but i can definitely understand it being doing it younger for similar ish reasons or you have ambition and, and you want to have something to show for it. And you have the added bonus of not having as much emotional maturity. You know, you, you know, you kind of get the sense that, and especially like with the back and forth in the beginning between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, like, you know, stop, put aside all your concerns about, about loyalty and, and so forth. You know, you, you got to do this. And it sounds like something um, someone younger would say more than someone older. Um, but and, and, but it, it's one of those things where you can just kind of go either way. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think I think he, he did a good job with casting John Finch and Francesca Annis to, um, you know, to, to sort of portray this this kind of ravishing young couple i mean they're both really gorgeous uh 
people in terms of their visual presentation and that energy and that dynamic. And I'm sure there, again, was kind of that desire to want to connect with the youth market with a couple of you know, physically attractive uh, leads. Um, and But, you know, the whole cast really is, is younger. And I think, again, you can make the case that life moved at a pretty fast pace back then, you know, that, uh, and especially I think Polanski's take that this kind of, uh, was kind of a form of tribal warfare, that, that lives were brutish, short, yeah. and people just kind of had to go for it when they could because treachery and betrayal and murder was, really around every corner and uh, I think that's an interesting aspect we're maybe going to unpack that a little bit further but uh, Trevor kind of you know having seen different versions of Macbeth how how did this one like rank was this one of the earliest impressions of Macbeth or did you come to it a little bit later after having seen it in other formats or how'd that go I came to it a lot later. I, I actually didn't watch it until the Criterion came out. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember when that was. Five 2014. Years ago? I don't know. 2014? Okay, yeah. So I've had it for six years. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I'd i seen, you know, many, many versions uh, prior to that. And I've seen other ones since. Um, and this one always stands out to me as one that I love watching for its um, art direction, for its visual splendor, for the imagery, um, more than for the delivery of the plays, lines, and mm-hmm. psychology and such. Mm-hmm. But I do really appreciate the um, the way that it looks historically and, for that reason, the age of the actors, because I, I do kind of buy into that idea that this was a t- these guys didn't live very long, you know, in medieval Scotland yeah. uh, necessarily, and it makes sense, you know. So I do appreciate seeing it from that perspective. But I, I, I'm one who, when I watch it and when I watch it again, kind of look at it and think they look too young to have this. Like Lady Macbeth in particular, I don't think Francesca Annis really delivers her psychology and kind of the the sophisticated deviousness um, that she employs both against her husband and against herself uh, to an extent. You know, from, from my perspective, she is someone who's been waiting in the wings for a while in the play. You know, when I read the play, there's mm. there's this has been someone who's had to go through quite a bit of of a life experience in treachery in order to get where she is. And that includes um, the way that she manipulates and, uh, you know, uh, well, the, the, the powerful relationship she has with her husband that she can kind of frame to him as one of equals, but at the same time question his values and his his own desires and his own ambition and, and frame it in terms of his manhood. Yeah. Um, you know, all of that kind of comes across not quite strongly enough for Francesca Annis in my mind. Um, so I look at this one as a visual just treat. Um, yeah. it, it's one that affects my imagination when I've reread the play since, including when I reread it with these older women. <laughs> I did not <laughs> yeah, show them yeah. this version. Um, nor did I watch it in <laughs> high school, by the way, Derek. That's okay. kind of something else. <laughs> um, but but as far as the this the gorgeous setting, the um the 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 witches, you know, their home and the way that he portrays that nightmarish just kind of liminal space there. I love that when he wakes up the next morning after visiting the witches, 
it's like an abandoned shanty, you know, that's been mm-hmm. fall. It's a ruin, and uh, it's, it's so much, so much fun going on in this film. So much of the the supernatural comes through in ways that I've never really seen um, done quite as well in other versions. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important aspect, and we and we and let's let's go ahead and get into that supernatural aspect because we've talked a lot about ambition and pride and and rivalry and and even the uh, the way that a uh, a spouse can sort of um, subtly goad their partner into taking bold uh, reckless action just by appealing to jealousy, uh, questioning their character. I mean, all the all the intimacies that a close relationship opens up can be used against that person if if somebody says, "Okay, I'm going to try to, you know, jerk your chain and pull your levers a little bit." So so there's a lot of, you know, worldly what you might even call psychological or materialistic explanations as to you know what drives the action of this story but that's another part of the the fascination is there is this macabre supernatural element uh, the witches and the the casting of spells and curses uh one of the very first things that we see uh is the the cover image uh, on the criterion or lace of a of a of a severed hand now it's not exactly clear on the cover that that hand is severed you know but it is definitely a very realistic uh, uh forearm and it's it's holding a dagger but it's holding it by the blade you know that's a, that's another kind of interesting uh little visual motif there but this this place where the witches are kind of burying these cursed um implements these little relics here turns out to be where the battle takes place you sort of see that same kind of uh beach kind of uh, environment inhabited a few moments later uh when uh, a man is bludgeoned with a with a mace uh who's maybe kind of either unconscious or, or playing possum whatever uh, and you just see the the sheer brutality of of this war but the witches really are a very uh, overriding influence in particular in shakespeare's play and uh, some of the criticism i've read uh not necessarily rejecting the film outright but it's it's to point out that Polanski really seems to de-emphasize that. He uses the witches to affect uh, their kind of goads that kind of somehow open up uh, Macbeth's fatal weakness, his flaws, his insecurity, his ability to let himself be manipulated. Um, But with Shakespeare, you almost get the sense that Macbeth is just this doomed character that the, you know, the omniscient but uh, mysterious decrees of of the universe have basically destined him for this horrible fate that uh, he was a valiant brave general a commander a loyal subject of the king who initially resists this wicked scheme but then once he sort of crosses that line it just catapulted to his own doom and so that's a a whole other aspect of, of this of this story is to what degree is our fate somehow sealed by the decrees of, of darker, mysterious forces that don't always have our best interest at heart? Yeah, it's just a whole other element here. And I think, again, Polanski plays with it a little bit, but he's really seems to be a lot more focused on power, ambition, and, and ruthless brutality uh, as its own sort of motivator. Well, and David, kind of on that, just as a response, I, I agree with you that as I, I mean, I focused on Francesca Annis as being maybe a little bit too young and 
uh, you know, her character uh, not having some of that psychology that's built up over time. Mm-hmm. And I do agree the same with John Finch's Macbeth. And I think you just put your hand right on the issue is that for me, his focus on just power and ambition that he, he kind of, it's almost like he just needed a little bit of a push mm-hmm. in order to start his schemes. That to me is not Macbeth as, as I love it, you know, as, as Shakespeare wrote it, which is so much more struggle, not a ton, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. Macbeth does kill, um, uh, Duncan in act two, um, or maybe it's even act one. I can't remember, but it's very early in the play. Um, and so it's not like he needs a whole lot, but he's he struggles a lot more with it. And, um, you know, there's so much more of that dynamic between him and his wife in the text and I think in other other adaptations, uh, whereas this one almost seems to take it for granted that he was always wanting to go this route. You know, he just needed a little bit of a push because that's the way that life was back then. Probably pretty realistic, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the fact that the young wife in particular is already thirsting after the top prize. I mean, her husband just got the promotion. Give it a little bit of time. He just enjoyed being <laughs> the vein of Cawdor for a, a month or two at least. But, you know, she's like, you know, springing the trap instantly once uh, Duncan crosses her threshold. Uh, yeah, you're right. There, there's a kind of a, a forced outcome there when you think of people that young as being that that ruthless and 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 ready to commit the most dire deed but yeah what are some other aspects of the film uh, you know just to kind of keep some of some of the the elements in front of us that that we enjoyed the most or or found most rewarding uh, upon this most recent visit well kind of building on the the witches a bit um i i, I do i do like how Polanski chose uh, to show like what you know the, the witches scene you know the, the famous uh, double double toil and trouble we're, we're mm-hmm. coming close to Halloween so we'll be hearing that a lot oh yeah sure <laughs> it's coming soon but um but yeah but the but the way that that's that's shown I, I I find that really really striking and it's it's definitely a continuation of what he did with uh, the nightmare slash uh, conception uh, that occurs in rosemary's baby I yeah that think of that. kind of floating on the water yeah he, he does use some visual effects to very powerful uh you know well effects <laughs> i guess yeah, right <laughs> that that you know there is that kind of just that weird disorientation you know uh, banquo's ghost and and uh, macbeth's vision of the the line of kings that uh, will descend from his you know former friend now you know chief rival and partner in destiny, uh, you know, just the way that Polanski uses kind of these kind of slightly altered, slightly hallucinatory visual uh, techniques, you know, that kind of speed up the film and just kind of play tricks on our eyes. It, it's it's very effective, kind of kind of trippy and disorienting all at the same time. And actually, to build to build on what Trevor pointed out about the role of the the supernatural and how it's sort of de- how it's downplayed in Polanski's take on it, the thing that fascinates me about Shakespeare in general is that every now and then he does come back to this this intersection of fate and free will. How much of our lives are our own choice, or is it written in the stars that we are doomed to some end? And, you know, and, and everything that comes with it, including the classic question, would you still have done what you have done if you weren't told? Uh, 
and actually even Macbeth says, you know, if you, if you could look at a, a grain of sand and tell which one would grow and which one would not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I would say that with, but, but I think what makes, what makes Shakespeare so adaptable is that it can really go either way. And I think for Shakespeare's time, there was this sort of, I kind of think of him as a bridge figure between the medieval world and the modern world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you, you get, you get the introductions of a little bit of, of, of what we would now consider psychology in Shakespeare, but you also have, uh, but you also have witches and, and, and hex and spells that also play a role. So I kind of, I kind of think that Polanski's kind of, would naturally lean more towards the modern and maybe downplay the witches, but there's, there's still kind of an acknowledgement there because that could still play a role too. So. Yeah. I I think again, going back to his life experience, uh, you know, the Nazis, the communists, uh, the, the Manson family and just all uh, the United States and Vietnam and, and just seeing what was happening in the world and, uh, and so many different areas where, powerful men in particular but you know just powerful individuals uh of, of, of both sexes could really um conduct themselves quite mercilessly and and incredibly damage the the lives of so many innocent people you know men women children people of, of more of a humble sense of themselves that they don't need to be on top, they don't need to be in charge. Um, they become victimized, uh, you know, kind of crushed under the wheels of ambition and the pursuit of power. I think Polanski is portraying that that vision of human affairs to his viewers because that's what he's seen, that's what he's lived, and that's what he's trying to impress upon us uh, that somehow whether this can change or not i mean it, it seems like he almost has a fatalistic outlook as well because at the end of the of the film in a very kind of quiet way we see uh, donald bain uh, the the brother of malcolm who's now been crowned king after you know macbeth has been slaughtered uh, and decapitated uh, now donald bain is over by the witch's hovel and perhaps making his own inquiry so you know the cycle continues yeah i know that was a polanski edition and actually i do like i do like that because it does right. it does sort of imply that it, it showcases the the cyclical nature of violence mm-hmm. and particularly that kind of violence. I mean, the fact that it starts with the battle that starts everything. And so it's kind of like you're, you're back to where you started. Like, have you really, yeah. like, have you really, I mean, with, with the, the death of Macbeth, have you really solved everything? Or are you just going to perpetuate this forever? <laughs> right. I know Macbeth's tragedy, I guess, uh, and is kind of, crystallizing in a moment this this ongoing cycle that's just destined to repeat itself on and on and on trevor let me get some of your thoughts i mean polanski obviously uh, introduced or depicted much of the violence that in shakespeare's telling happens off stage obviously there's things that you can do on film in the 20th century that you would be difficult to do on stage and back in the you know 1600s uh but what did you think of polanski's choice to make some of that violence much much more explicit yeah so i i was uh, that's what i would bring up as something that really stands out of <laughs> yeah. course and i appreciate it um i think this is a brutal tale and a brutal um 
uh, a depiction of a brutal world. It fits in with Polanski's uh, idea of how this just continues on and on and on. You know, Macbeth isn't a stranger. Uh, we see him in business. We see him in families. We see him in communities, you know, all over mm-hmm. the place and in ourselves. And the, that violence that can, can result from that and the, the way that this this world at that time, um, this kind of physical violence was pretty normal, you know? I mean, how can you go and fight with swords and maces and all of that and see people crushed and, and, um, and just torn apart and not, you know, eventually just get to that being the way that the world is? And then you have Polanski, who, you know, when you watch this film, if you've read something like Helter Skelter, you can't help but see the murder scenes oh, that right. he's yeah. familiar yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just it, it's not that foreign. We're just better at, at, well, I mean, I've never seen anything like that personally. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. Um, but it does still happen. It might just not be as as uh, routine as if we were battling, you know, our, our neighbors, right. you know, every every fortnight or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so I I do appreciate it. It's not uh, it's not to me gratuitous violence. It's um, it's a deliberate, uh, intentional, um, uh, and important way at times, you know, to show how things like this play out when we get to the other adaptations that we've seen i'll I'll go over one of another violent one that i actually walked away really appreciating Mm -hmm. too but that that's something that stands out in this version i mean from from the very beginning you got the the severed hand or arm and then you've got the guy on the beach going and trying to take the shoes and the guy you know the person he's taking from turns out to still be alive and so he beats him on the back with a mace i mean even in movies today they usually cut away from that a little right. bit. No, this was it was so <laughs> cold, so clinical, just like yeah. and you see the blood kind of spreading. It's not something I makes you wonder how they did it. I mean, <laughs> did they put someone out there and just say, Look, you're gonna have to take a few hits for the team here? You know? <laughs> I think actually one of the supplements, I mean, it, uh they viewed an extra. He was a guy who was kind of on a, a bike tour, like a motorcycle tour, and heard that Polanski needed extras, and he was the guy who got clobbered with the mace. It's it's in one of the... Yeah. Um, I think Polanski meets Mc, Macbeth or something yep. like that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it was that uh, one. Yeah. Is he okay? He, he, he lived to tell the tale. <laughs> so they, they must have had some, some padding there, you know. But, you know, really to your point, Trevor, you know, Macbeth's whole ascension into the hierarchy is based on his ability to unseam the man from the nave to the chops. I mean, that was his death stroke. It, that yeah. was his killer move that, mm-hmm. that got the king's attention and said, oh, well, he's the one that I want to give the honors to. And I think that's just a whole other thing. You know, uh, Duncan is portrayed as this magnanimous, genteel king, this lordly figure, uh, you know, gracious and, and respectable and impeccable and all of that. And yet, you know, beyond the, the, the surface glamour and all the, the lordly aura, He's just another cold-hearted bastard killer himself. You know, he would not be—he would not be in that position if he had not walked that same path. That—that's how you get to, you know, the position of the gang leader, aka king, aka right. godfather. Uh, you know, the, the Lord's anointed uh, servant of domestic tranquility and all of that. It's, it's, it, there really is a reign of terror aspect, uh, even behind so many of the 
beloved and, and nostalgic symbols of royalty that uh, continue to be celebrated in so many circles to this day. And then I think that can translate into other heads of state beyond, uh, you know, kings and, and uh, potentates of that sort. Uh, the, the killer instinct, whether it's physical in battle or in business or just even in the art of politics, the ability to be, you know, ruthless and, and uncompromising and, uh, you know, vindictive is, is celebrated as a quote unquote leadership trait. <laughs> so yeah. House of cards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah. so many aspects of this, but I think Macbeth really does, you know, bring it to a certain point of, of definition and brilliance. I've got two more things that Polanski kind of changes that I think are, are worth uh, looking at because I, I find that they uncover different aspects of the, of the play. Um, uh, one is the change in how important the character of Ross oh, yeah, is. Yeah. That's really um, interesting. I thought that was really fascinating. I, I need to reread it because it's been a while. Um, I can't remember much more of Ross other than just kind of being a, one of those guys who gets some action done. But in this one, he's got his own story, you know, very much, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of whispered mm-hmm. of his own ambitions and his own, you know, desire to help Macbeth. But then when Macbeth doesn't turn around and, and give him, uh, you know, the the, a, there, a, yeah. a new mm-hmm. title of, of all of that, you know, he he's the one who crowns Malcolm yeah. at the end or gives the crown to Malcolm at the end anyway. And um, I think that that's another way of, of Polanski kind of showing that this is this is not just Macbeth. This is everybody involved in this story has got their own their own um, secrets and their own murderous schemes in order to get their power. And I really liked I really liked that. And like I say, I have one more, yeah, go ahead. Um, but I no, don't want to. Um, that that's the way that Polanski turns a lot of the dial or the um, the soliloquies into internal monologues or voiceovers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than you know you have uh, John Finch wandering around watching things happen while his mind is is stating you know Shakespeare's text rather than as we're used to seeing you know, on stage or in many adaptations you know the character actually voicing you know these soliloquies turning to the audience while the other actors freeze up or they do some kind of effect to sort of make it plausible that all of these (laughs) confessions would come out there exactly (laughs) i kind of like that you know i i i I like that approach to it then certainly best place to do that is on in, in film but i don't even think i know of a lot of other film adaptations that have gone that route no, it seems it seems like it's a pretty if you if you're trying to portray this in a naturalistic type of setting, uh, characters kind of working out their own dilemmas internally, uh, silently to the as far as the outside world is concerned, but giving us the audience uh, the privilege of kind of knowing what's on their mind. I think again, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, did you, I, you know Kenneth Tynan apparently is the is the kind of the co screenwriter. Yeah. He's got a pretty big reputation. There is a supplement on the disc that he's interviewed um, by Dick Cavett, and that's that's pretty fascinating. I, I don't have a ton of other information but do you have much about Tynan's reputation or what you think he brought to this uh, uh, screenplay adaptation I I think he brought quite a bit but it's not because of any real knowledge okay. I have more because of his reputation I think he probably encouraged a lot of the um, a lot of the changes yeah. uh, I think he also he he himself had a, a pretty good um, 
history of wanting to kind of blow open the doors on what you could and couldn't show and tell and say on screen or on stage. And so I also assume that some of the, um, you know, he, first off, he, he's a Shakespeare mm-hmm. scholar and a historian, uh, so he, he he knew a lot, but he, he wasn't necessarily without controversy. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's one of those that kind of said, here's how it is, and uh, this... And, and they could be controversial opinions that he just never seemed to back down from. Um, and I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with that as it seemed to have come to fruition in this particular version of Macbeth. Because, again, I think I think that he probably realized, oh, I've got Roman Polanski here. I'm going to manipulate him a little bit because I want to get this version of Macbeth on the screen. And here's a willing auteur who um, I think is going to be able to do it. So I, I really do see um, Kenneth Tynan as kind of a, you know, a, a voice behind uh, behind Polanski in so many of the decisions that, that came about here. And Polanski was more the, the, the means of um, uh, realizing the, uh, the vision that Tynan had. Not to say that Polanski isn't, isn't all over this too with his fingerprints, but you know, honestly, if we're getting all Shakespearean, I think Tynan knew that and um, and went went for so it. He's kind of the late. He's the Lady Macbeth. Yeah, he's the Lady Macbeth of screenwriting. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Go, yep. All right. Well, Derek, any final bits about the film itself that you want to kind of bring to our attention, or or uh, you know, kind of take take us to the next phase of our discussion? I think I think another elephant in the room is um, speaking of violence. Uh, anything involving bear baiting would not fly mm. at all today. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. There's yeah. There's animal cruelty. There's there's uh, you know murder of children. I mean, there's there's some real hardcore atrocity. Yeah. <laughs> kind of going back to Trevor's little side, like they showed that to you in high school, <laughs> but you know. Yeah, actually, yeah. I, I'm thinking back to that. I, I was impressed that they were able to get away with it, but it was, but it worked. Um, but mm-hmm. actually, another, another. since I faintly mentioned House of Cards, it's interesting that Diane Fletcher is in this as Lady Macduff, and then a couple decades later, she would later be uh, the wife of Francis Urquhart in House of Cards, where she plays a Lady mm. Macbeth type character. Interesting. That, that's a great connection. Well, let's let's talk about some of the sort of miscellaneous bits here. I'll, I'll sort of start with one, which is the the musical soundtrack by the Third Ear Band. Uh, Derek, I know you're kind of a music guy. I really I really liked the period atmosphere, the the kind of vintage instruments. I, I can't say for a fact, but there's that one shot of the band up in the gallery there during one of the celebratory feasts, and it wouldn't surprise me to to know for a fact that that was probably the band kind of getting their little cameo moment. Uh, but I, I, you know, I've got the soundtrack. Uh, it's a nice kind of medieval retro throwback type of piece. Um, I, I think it was a it's an excellent choice for just the musical accompaniment. Really sets the atmosphere. Um, I'll certainly use that in some of my little editing segments here uh, of the episode. Um, any thoughts on on music, Derek, or or Trevor for that matter? That was definitely something I noticed when I first watched it was was mm-hmm. the use of music and and how it was both of the time and yet kind of beyond its time as well. So it, it, it straddles that line really, really nicely and very, very effectively for sure. 
Yeah, it wasn't like historic you know, period pieces from uh, you know either ancient Scotland or Elizabethan England, for that matter. It's it is it, it it's it's almost like a little bit of a acoustic Pink Floydy type of stuff. Yes, from, from yes. that era. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, what are some other you know aspects to the disc? We can talk about you know just the 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 presentation, the Blu-ray. We've already mentioned a couple of the supplements, but uh, you know. What would you think of the overall package? I remember when I got the disc, I went through it all and, and really liked it. I'm afraid I did not re-review mm-hmm. it um, in preparation for this, which I should have. But I think I've mentioned to you I've been a little distracted. <laughs> oh, sure, <laughs> um, sure, yeah. But the um, the presentation of this is pretty gorgeous. Uh, it, it looks fantastic, you know. It and that's and it's to the film's benefit of course you know of course it is that's that's silly to say trevor every film benefits from that but i guess in this in this particular one where the atmosphere with the smoke and the 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 grit and all of that stuff makes it very clear this is not a stage bound production um it does at least you know they do a very good job of of making this feel like a lived-in castle yeah and, yeah um very dirty and unpleasant and 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 brutal even in itself you know like if you're talking about how setting can influence your own psychology this is this is a, a an adaptation that really really goes into how that can that can um that can play out and it just looks I think fantastic on on the disc yeah and I think the set design too I think that that castle that I think was built for this purpose was really quite nicely done it's it there yeah there's nothing stagey about it you really get to know the environment you get to know the the stairways and the pathways and the courtyard and you know where the animals are kept and you know the the hay bales tossed in for sleeping quarters and just all all of that you you have a real sense of place and of course it's that <laughs> that you know it's that very eerie you know castle up on this this kind of you know this hill that doesn't seem to have any purpose to be there other than to be the platform for some sinister you know manifestation of evil or something like that uh but yeah it it is it's 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 quite a it's quite a nice um robust package for anybody who loves this play and, and particularly anybody who enjoys this movie i think the the polanski meets Macbeth is kind of a, a great making of there's also i think about an hour-long more contemporary type of essay that goes into the film's history and and all of that uh the dick cavett uh interview that i mentioned already you get a couple trailers. I, I didn't necessarily get a whole lot out of Terrence Rafferty's essay, but you know that's fine. It's just kind of a, a placeholder there. I've, I've read better Criterion essays than that one, but uh, it is all right. Um, so yeah, anything else to say about the package, or do we want to talk about other versions of Macbeth that have maybe caught our attention? How about let's go there? <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's, let's so, move on. <laughs> That sounds good. So, so Trevor, I know you were going to mention maybe a particularly violent or something. I mean, you kind of mentioned a while back there uh, some of the other versions that have you know, you know that, that you might favor, might yeah. want to pass along. So let's hear what you recommend. Well, I don't know if the my favorite one will ever be um, viewable for most people. It was a stage production in London in twenty in two thousand four that I just kind of went to on a whim. You know, I was a student over over there at the time, um, in and that's where I met my wife. Going back to a golden mm-hmm. time for me yes. here. Plays were dirt cheap because they gave students, you know, great pricing. And uh, I went to see Macbeth, this kind of out of the way, um, you know, warehouse. And it was an African cast. 
And they started us in the basement, and a lot of the cast and crew would stand around with machine guns, and um, you go into the basement, and you see these witches, and they're like, you know, witch doctor-ish kind of things, you know, and, and you know, fascinating ac- accents to, to play these this role is very creepy, to the point where, you know, I'm like, and, and you're standing around, you're basically on stage with them while they're doing this stuff, they made it very audience interactive, and um, when that's over, all of the the you know people with guns start to march you up to where you can sit down and you're right on stage again to watch Macbeth play out. And it was it was fascinating. And um, they after Macduff, or sorry, after uh, not Macduff, a- after the Duncan gets murdered, they would have you come back. Um, to a to a side room, and you could pay them like literal money. You'd have to pay them, you know, uh, whatever you had in your pocket, to go in and see the carnage. Wow! To, to witness <laughs> it yourself, and they had it. They had it built up, just very bloody, and um, and I just remember at the end of the play, and I had seen this. So I, I lived in Brazil for several years. And I, I'd been not a part of, but I'd seen the results of some, you know, gang warfare and mm. stuff. Where afterwards they would go around and post um, flyers of, you know, a murdered, uh, you know, opponent. Um, and that's how this play ended. Mm. Yeah, everyone gets a flyer of Macbeth beheaded, um, <laughs> and wow. it was so, you know, powerful because I'm like, yeah, this is this is kind of a history that's still in action. When you look at the what's what can go on in Africa with a lot of these these countries and these rulers, um, and here they are playing it out in Macbeth in just this powerful way. It was beautifully produced, beautifully acted. I mean, it was it was remarkable, mm. uh, in it and super uncomfortable. Yeah, because you just felt like you were part of it in a way that you just don't want to do. Well, your night out of the <laughs> with theater results like this. in your kind of being held hostage for a couple of hours. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yep. That's that's. It was it was it was fun. This play can do um, can can really travel. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. maybe we'll come back to some other cinematic versions. But Derek, what is another version of Macbeth that maybe uh, has caught your attention, or you want to you know talk about a little bit? Well, the only admittedly the only other uh, cinematic take of on Macbeth I've seen is Throne of Blood. Sure. And um, it's and it's it's interesting because it's both a nod to Macbeth, but it also clearly does its own thing, uh, particularly with using no theater conventions. So, so it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's one of those, yeah, it's an adaptation, but it's also other things as well. So, um, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen the other adaptations that you've listed, but, uh, I hope to find some time to, to see them just, just for curiosity's sake, for sure. Yeah. I'd recommend the Patrick Stewart oh, one. I think that one's really it is good. Incredible. I, I, you know, uh, John Lobinger kind of recommended that to me. But once I, you know, a couple weeks ago when I was making my transition out of a touch of Zen over to Macbeth for the podcast, I just did a little searching online and just found as many versions of Macbeth as I could, just to sort of really immerse myself in this in this world and to see sort of like how Trevor said, you know, how many different directions it has gone in in its adaptation and. And the Patrick Stewart version is somewhat along the lines of Kurosawa in that he's replacing the setting of the play to more of a, in this case, a much more contemporary context, which I guess the aesthetic is 
Romania under the Ceausescu regime in the late 1960s Ooh. or something like that. Oh, boy. Oh, it's, <laughs> oh it is it is remarkable. I, I, I have to give Patrick Stewart the, the nod as the best performance of Macbeth that I've seen because he rings out every nuance of evil and twisted um, priorities and, and just his, his line readings uh, are incredibly passionate and heartfelt and he he really brings the text to life in a way that i i really have not seen uh anybody else rival i mean do you do you share my assessment of stewart's performance there trevor do you have any other uh, supreme macbeths uh, to uh-huh. recommend 100 yeah. percent um this the, if and i thought kate fleetwood as lady mm-hmm. macbeth also yeah does a fantastic job. I mean, they, and you're right, it's the way that they allow the text to work with you. It's not just, you know, honestly, I think I could watch Roman Polanski's on mute yeah. and just know the story, and it's so much more about the visuals, but this production is all about the 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 very intricate philosophies and, and um, finagling that is going on within the text, and they really really play it well so i'm i'm with you 100 percent. I've, I've i've never seen orson wells version of macbeth oh i, I watched um, that as well i can talk about it but go ahead yeah but you know i i don't think i don't I, I don't i don't expect him to dethrone you know this this patrick stewart performance it's 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 remarkable no, the, the the wells version is i think very commendable um olive signature has a really nice uh, dual disc blu-ray edition out which has the original cut which is i think about a hundred and uh about an hour and 45 minutes um and then there's also kind of a shorter cut which is after the studio got their mitts on it and kind of hacked it down for supposedly commercial purposes or whatever so as is the case with so many wells films uh, a kind of a tortured history and very lamentable but we do at least have uh pretty much the director's original cut that that vision is there and it's very stagey um it's it's definitely a a flawed film, but I think still extremely impressive for what it is, and very very enjoyable because you get to see Wells um, do just all kinds of you know visual you know effects and spooky atmosphere, and he really does play up the the witchery of it all, and uh, and even provides some context that I think sort of makes some of the more uh, overt political uh, overtones a little bit more digestible for that post-war era where I think, you know, a, a much a sharper commentary or critique of, of the politics of power may not have been as well received in the late 1940s as we're kind of getting into McCarthyism and all of that here in the USA. Um, it seemed like maybe he was even compelled to put some sort of disclaimers and, and, and really emphasize, you know, the, 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 the supernatural element a little bit more. And there's a, there's a good essay that's linked in the show notes uh, that William Remmers brought to my attention. So we'll maybe explore that a little bit when we get him on the conversation. So yeah, the, the Wells version is very much, uh, you know, a, a top telling. I, again, I, I rewatched Throne of Blood last night just to kind of, you know, now that I've, I'm, you know, fully fluent in Macbeth, um, I thought, well, let's go ahead and watch Kurosawa's version. And I think it's very interesting. Kurosawa definitely seems to put a lot more emphasis on the wickedness of Lady Macbeth or 
uh, you know, whatever her name was in that version, um, as as the primary goad to to get to Shiro Mifune's character, uh, you know, to commit more of his evil deeds. And there's certainly a lot more emphasis on the the pageantry and spectacle of samurai warfare and all of that. And of course, there's the famous arrow scene and and everything that makes Throne of Blood a, a true classic. But whether it's a hot take or not, I don't know. But it's often said that Throne of Blood is the best version of Macbeth on film, and, and I would just you know, pretty strongly disagree. It's it's a great film, but it's not really Macbeth. It's just using the plot elements of Macbeth and putting him into a Japanese context, which is which is great. But Macbeth really is Shakespeare. That language has to have its place because there's just so many wonderful quotes and images that are conjured up in the verbals that you're just not going to get in a Japanese translation. Lady Asagi. Did you ever see? Oh, no, sorry. Uh, Lady Asagi is is, is okay. Lady Mac, is yeah. Japanese Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. And and it's a great performance. And like you say, Derek, that the no theater traditions and just that aura of mystery uh, in in Throne of Blood. The the three witches are are kind of condensed into one solitary ghostly figure, a, a male figure. All these actually kind of androgynous when you really look at it. But, uh, yeah, so there's definitely some interesting interpretation going on there. Uh, but it's it's something somewhat different than proper Macbeth, in my opinion. David, yeah. did you watch the um, recent uh, Michael Fassbender I did. I, I watched that one, I think it was right after I'd watched the Orson Welles version. So it's been about a week and a half or so. Um, it was it was okay. I think it was, yeah, I gave it maybe like a three or three and a half stars because some of the visual effects are, are pretty impressive. It's made in that kind of hyper-modern style that is kind of, you know, yeah, to be expected. Yeah. Um, some of the battle scenes had to have that 300 style slow motion, you know, kind of thing going on, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I actually felt that Fassbender's talent was, was a bit wasted because many of Macbeth's more powerful lines and soliloquies were, were rendered in kind of a mumble or kind of a, more of a turgid type of delivery because I guess as and I, I would say that this is more how he's directed to deliver the lines maybe than perhaps how he might have done it if he had been on stage uh, you know this kind of gruff understated gritting through your teeth type of uh, delivery rather than the more theatrical enunciation that's meant to reach the you know the upper balconies and all of that um, so it may be that I just don't care for that style of movie making as much as maybe uh, younger viewers might, or just people who are just more used to the conventions of contemporary cinema. I mean, I watch a lot more old movies than I watch new movies, so I'm a creature of habit, I suppose. So it's it's worth checking out if you just really want to sort of see another take on Macbeth, but I would definitely say it's second tier uh, compared to the other films we've been talking about. I agree. I, I was going to kind of point the same direction okay. so you said it perfectly okay okay so yeah. <laughs> i think i think you know and I, maybe you and i are the same i prefer a, a versions where i can really get into the text mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. even though it's a you know visual feast and um honestly that version didn't give me as much visual feast as roman polanski's right. version and right. i also think kind of didn't give me the text so right a lot of the visuals are through filters and you know color palettes and and kind of again the the high def technology that makes for pretty impressive imagery but it just doesn't have that same lived in inhabited feel that we get from polanski and his crew camping out in their 
mucky castle for several weeks uh, putting those scenes together. Um, I've also watched a few. There's uh, there's uh, you know a few plays and and other adaptations that are available on different streaming channels most of which tend to be a lot more talky i mean you can really sense how quickly the film descends into recitation of lines when you've got actors who are either they're capable and and they they can pull it off but it feels a lot more like kind of the local theater company production uh up there strutting and fretting their hour by the stage you know to to kind of do their thing and it's fine because it gives you a chance to revisit this text and to also sort of see how did this company decide to portray these these classic scenes i mean that that's that's the thing with macbeth and with so much of shakespeare's once you've kind of got the whole play into your system now it's like going to the symphony to see how beethoven is interpreted and in this case you've got actors and and you've got staging and you've got even the editing what's what portions do you leave in what portions do you leave out i found an old dvd i got at a library sale uh, a few years ago that is like the bbc production where they they basically film every line in the original text which makes it like a two and a half hour uh, theatrical production so there's a lot to choose from out there but I, I i really would give my highest endorsement to the patrick stewart and also to the orson wells just because i think the historic value and, and to see orson when he was still pretty young and 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 relatively trim and and uh you know, just just doing his thing in a in a pretty memorable and effective way, uh, despite some of the the hardships that the film has had to suffer in its production and and its life after after that was all wrapped up. So yeah, um, any final comments, guys, before we uh, shut down this portion of things? I don't think Voodoo Macbeth is available in any form, is it? I've only no, seen well, sni- I've only seen talk- snippets of it. Right. I think there was a documentary of some sort where a few scenes were captured. That's the Orson Welles uh, production with a with a black cast. Uh, that yeah, the Federal, Federal Theater Project. Right, right. And uh, and was that in the 30s even? or, or... Yeah, that was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, 37. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the first major theatrical production he did. And this mm-hmm. was before uh, starting Mercury Theater and than doing Julius Caesar. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah, the the snippets I remember seeing was in was used in uh, the battle over Citizen Kane. Yeah, okay, yeah. It, that actually is there's an extra bit on the um Olive film disc which is from We Work Again a 1937 WPA documentary containing scenes from Wells Federal Theater Project. So so that's what exists and it was just a kind of a happy coincidence that they decided to catch that production while they were making this film. So yeah, yeah there, there's a lot to recommend it, uh, that, that uh, Olive Signature uh, disc for, for Macbeth. Again, two Blu-rays, lots of extras, a very, very rich package. Okay, guys, well, I think our hurly-burly is done here, so we, we will <laughs> we will uh, wrap it up. Um, I'll probably save my end of the episode concluding remarks after we record our next segment with William and Brad. So it's been a blast, guys. I really appreciate making the time for me this morning, and uh, we'll catch you all next time. All right? Take care.
And we are back for part two of this uh, mega episode on William Shakespeare's Macbeth as uh, rendered by Roman Polanski and crew in 1971. Uh, I've already name-checked my two guests for this segment, but let's go ahead and introduce them in person. First, William Remmers. William, how's it going today? Pretty well, thanks. Yes, very nice to have you back. We're really looking forward to a, a great conversation with you and also with Brad McDermott. Brad, hello and welcome back to the show. Hello, David. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, well, it's a delight. And, and uh, you know, had a great conversation with Trevor and Derek. Uh, now we're going to kind of pick things up. And, and as I kind of said at the beginning of that segment, uh, we've kind of got five sort of topics that we're going to address. And also, since I've already spoken a lot of my piece, I'm going to kind of give you, uh, William and Brad, the permission to kind of just run with it. Not that I'm going to be silent or, you know, sort of a passive observer by any uh, extent, but I will probably respond in somewhat, uh, some respects to the things you say. Uh, I don't think I've said everything I have to say about this film, but I've kind of already launched a few of my, uh, you know, broad observations out there. But anyways, I'm really, really eager to hear your thoughts. I know you probably both have some experience with uh, this play and, and really eager to hear your uh, perceptions and observations on the film. So let's go ahead and just start with the general topic of Macbeth. I mean, this is a cultural milestone. This is this is a big one here, uh, a story that is is certainly bigger and more pervasive, more extensive than even the movie itself even though I think this is a great film and, and a very worthy telling of the tale, Macbeth is really one of those transcendent uh, stories uh, of uh, English literature and, and really world literature. So let's kind of hear a little bit about your experience. I'll give William the chance to kick it off. Uh, what's up with you and Macbeth? Macbeth was our 11th grade uh, Shakespeare in English. We did um, Romeo and Juliet, and Midsummer, and then Macbeth in ninth, tenth, and eleventh grade, and basically just doing your your typical thing where you all sit in a room, all your English classmates, and no one likes the play because no one likes Shakespeare besides you, and <laughs> everybody takes turns reading characters and scenes very badly, and mm -hmm. there's no possible way anybody could ever understand the text doing it in that fashion. And this compulsory just, obligation, this yeah, arm it, twisting it, thing, right? Where everything's pronounced wrong and it's very slow and unenthused. And every scene takes three times its normal length. <laughs> so that's, yeah. how we, that's how we did it. And um, we did Macbeth, 11th grade. And I really loved it. And I remember the, the best part was we got to do a project where... I don't even remember what other people did, but anytime there was a project in any class, I would always say, could I write a song or make a movie instead of, I mean, it may have been an essay or a poster or a presentation. And I just, I'd rather make something fun. And they always said yes. So uh, both me and my best friend who was in the class with me, we all each wrote our own Macbeth songs telling the story of the whole play. Uh, hmm. Mine exists somewhere. It's not very good. Uh, my friends is online. I found it last night. Um, oh, wow. And uh, it's it's really funny. So we really enjoyed, I think, um, the machinations of the play and its story, which I think is the focus when you're in that kind of class, more so than the beauty of the text, the cultural implications, its historical significance. It just really becomes a let's teach these kids the story of the play. And 
though that's a bit of a shallow rendering, I, I can't deny that it, it was still infectious. Um, and interestingly, we, um, as I as I heard, uh, was the same with Derek. Um, we watched part of, in our case, Polanski's Macbeth. Um, at the end, on a terrible TV in the corner of the room, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I, I know we watched the very end for sure because um, everybody screamed when his head got chopped off. Yeah, and that's a pretty realistic decapitation. I mean, it's, sure. it's pretty oh, wow. pretty convincing. <laughs> and 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 the thing, thing thing I remember about that experience, as was the same when we watched Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet in ninth grade, in it that was in its entirety. Um, you know, anytime there was a moment of um, sexual or violent interest, people laughed nervously, almost at the material. And I remember feeling like that's not the point, even though the film didn't leave a big impression on me in its truncated form on that terrible TV. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't until it came out on the Blu-ray that I finally got to revisit it. And um, and that's basically been my experience. In fact, I, my, I hadn't really touched the play at all between then and the release of the film with uh, Fassbinder, and which was about five years ago or so. Yeah, and 2015, right? At that time, I saw it in the theater and then finally saw The Wells and The Polanski and um, rewatched Throne of Blood and kind of had my Macbeth moment about five years ago, which I've sort of revisited in these last couple of weeks. Okay, so th so you kind of did the the full Macbeth dive in 2015, right after the theatrical release there, right? Yeah. I and and I, I I gained I gained an appreciation for and as a disdain for binging the same type of adaptation several times in a row because it mm -hmm. can be it can though I think when you're dealing with adaptations of any kind, the more you consume and the more you're able to take in from various sources, the more they tend to enrich each other. Sometimes give each like discredit each other, but they often enrich each other in my experience and help fill in each other's gaps. But you, you end up gaining a collective memory of all mm -hmm. of the Macbeths you've seen. And they, they can sometimes blur or sometimes you might get some of the facts wrong. So I knew I needed to revisit some. I didn't revisit Throne of Blood as I've seen that too many times. Um, and to me, it's it's not a Macbeth film in the same way that these other, that the Wells, which I think we I know Brad just rewatched or watched, uh, I noticed on Letterboxd. So <laughs> I think I think that's going to come up uh, later for us too. So yeah, um, we'll get so, into our our versions sure. and comparisons in a little bit. But but you know, and I think just the idea of Macbeth, you know, this this ambitious man driven by his emasculating wife, the influence of the witches, the you know the the role of supernatural fate and predestination versus just kind of your own lusty desires you know that, that's kind of the the underlying core of the story and uh that's what i think has kind of fixed this this whole thing in the imagination let's go ahead and hear brad's uh, uh encounters with macbeth uh recently or over the course of your life um well my story starts much the same uh grade 11 um was macbeth Yes, I, I, grade nine was Midsummer Night's Dream, 10, Romeo and Juliet, and 12 was Hamlet. So I have the numbers right there. Number 11 was uh, Macbeth. And um, I was always really taken. I think this is my favorite Shakespeare play. I have not read mm. them all, but um, of the ones I've read, this is my favorite. I think mostly because I it's it's a horror story and oh. i and as a kid and a teenager i mean i still am um i love horror uh, as a genre and it's many different forms and it's sort of um 
you know, it's exciting to see something like this that's so old, but still contains um, those same sort of horror elements that you, you loved. So uh, it always kind of stuck with me. And when I was in high school, like I would draw in because I was in art class and um, we had a sketchbook that we had to like fill by the end of our year. And I was always coming up with like different iterations of the three witches and trying mm. to like put them in different dress and different costumes and like using different pencil crayon or pastels or paint or something and um, I, I remember this one day I had, was like flipping through my pages just showing um, my classmate just my sketchbook and there was this like super um, conservative um, very religious girl who saw a picture of the three witches and I'll never forget she accused me of being a Satanist and I thought <laughs> jumping guess... to conclusions <laughs> right, there right <laughs> But I was like, of all the pictures, I think we have a winner here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got the reaction. That's for exactly, sure, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, and I think that's the, that's another piece of it. Yeah, it's not just the themes; it's it's the imagery. It's the double, double toil and trouble. You know, fire burn and cauldron bubble. I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, it's it's just amazing that you know Shakespeare and and kind of putting these words on paper has just kind of emblazoned these these memorable lines and images and impressions i mean those witches are kind of like the you know classic archetype of of sinister witches you know brewing up their curses and pronouncing the fate of of uh of, of wicked and corrupted individuals it, you know it's it's just an amazing uh piece of work the the the, the cultural resonance uh as i've already kind of said in the previous segment this is kind of a global work even though it kind of uh I, and i'm sure we could do the scholarship and say shakespeare took it from this tradition and that and everything else but macbeth just really kind of crystallizes it all and it's it's quite an amazing uh phenomenon just to kind of encounter it and and the fact that you know we've all seemed to have that same kind of experience kind of at that late adolescent phase of life uh our teachers figure we're old enough to handle it you know <laughs> and 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 there are those who are kind of just get dragged along and then there's those like william and i think all of us who kind of latch on to it as to a certain degree I, I william i was kind of intrigued with your story you know that most of your classmates were just kind of you know trying to get through it where you kind of found something appealing here i mean uh did you connect with other students who uh also found something of lasting significance and, and value in uh, encountering this text? Other, other than my, my best friend who had been my best friend for years and years and still is, we both connected with it yeah. because, because we're smart. Uh, <laughs> and I just, I just remember, you know, anytime we were reading it and rereading it now um, and experiencing moments where people would giggle at the text, even as we read it, if someone said breast, you know, and these are, these are yeah. 16, 17 year olds. And it was, uh, it was embarrassing. So yeah. I, I much appreciated um, getting to grow up and then um, at least the experience of seeing these, these films um, either by myself or with respecting audiences uh, over time and, and exploring, as I think we'll get into operatic versions of them mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, various, various ways in which these very eternal works, particularly Macbeth, which, is uh, as quotable as, as any of them has transfixed so many people over time. Uh, and I, I'm at least glad to say, I don't think it'll ever die because 
when you're at least in London, you know, it's it's the hot tickets are going to be Shakespeare. And when you're in New York City, Shakespeare in the park is the hottest ticket. But yeah. in my life in the suburbs in Long Island, it it, uh, it wasn't a ticket at all. So we have the up here. We, sorry, we have the Stratford Festival up here. Sure, right. Stratford, Ontario. And and uh, um, it, Shakespeare is a big ticket. We also do have Shakespeare in the park here in High Park in Toronto. So every summer. You know, when I was in New York City in 2017, I was there for a kind of a work training conference, and we were staying at the Holiday Inn right down there in the Battery, and and uh, the training I went to was right on Wall Street. Like I could look down and see the the bull and the girl statue like right out the window. And um, my wife and I, when we were watch, walking around Battery Park uh, one evening, this was August of 2017, really just stumbled into a kind of a, a performance of Macbeth. Uh, right there on the green, uh, right there on the battery, which was a really incredible encounter. I had seen the play uh, performed live several times. I'd, I'd seen the Polanski film on the old DVD prior to even the, the Criterion version that came out in 2015. And uh, it was just such a wonderful, invigorating experience to see this incredible masterpiece of, of literature and, and uh theatrical you know arts and all of that happening right there in such an amazing location um so yeah i mean that, that's just part of my own experience and, and I, you know, when you mentioned shakespeare in the park yeah that kind of triggered a memory i hadn't really mentioned that in, in the first portion there but that was definitely one of the most uh impressive and and unforgettable encounters that i've had with with this play uh the sword fights happening right before your eyes and and you know again in this outdoor uh amazing environment it must be recalled too the the hot ticket in new york a few years ago and still is is sleep no more uh which is a in um like a immersive experience immersive theatrical experience that um puts you inside the play and mm. um is a bit of an adaptation in some ways but is macbeth it is the play itself and the thing about that is, it, is, is that's another circumstance where the success of the play and the material transcends even the title or the name recognition, because it's you can I bet thousands of people have gone to see Sleep No More in New York and didn't know maybe even until they got there, if, if at all, where the text comes from. And hmm. it's quite fascinating to see how many times these works are even refigured for film and theater without even retaining the title or the Shakespeare on the on the front that they that they do stand on their own as more than just uh, historical relics. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, let's go ahead and make the the quick pivot to talk about Roman Polanski now, because uh, he's a big part of this particular film, this production, this interpretation of Macbeth. Um, you know, we've kind of I've kind of already sort of thrown out some of the basics, some of the the background of Polanski, the the controversy surrounding his name, his reputation, and and his undeniable uh, mastery and power as a filmmaker. Uh, one other thing I'll just say, you know, is that from those supplements that are on this uh, Criterion Blu-ray, he really came across as a pretty cool guy. I mean, I, I was just really um, taken by his his charm, his charisma, his undeniable talent. And uh, and just what a 
what a fascinating personality he is and certainly was at the time that this film was being made. Uh, there are some interviews with him in more recent years as he's older, uh, looking back and talking about the making of this film. Uh, he's a very vibrant personality, but obviously one with a, a bit of baggage because of some of the legal complications. Uh, and, you know, let's, let's, let's face it, some some pretty uh, appalling behavior that uh, is part of his story. Uh, so, Brad, I'll kind of kick it over to you. What, what do you have to say about Roman Polanski, and and how do we want to kind of address just the whole the whole picture uh, of of what he's done, what he's about, uh, just kind of your assessment of him as a filmmaker, and and wherever you want to take it from there. Um, great filmmaker, horrible person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to to be so succinct about it, um, but. You know, the question of how to deal with art you like made by horrible people um, is never going to be solved by me, by the end of this podcast, by anybody. Um, It is, uh, you know, there's uh, always sort of that line of death of the author or, Mm -hmm. you know, ethereal intent and sort of where we sit on this line. And it differs from person to person. It differs from artist to artist. And um, I don't know. I don't know how to square that circle. All I know is that he's very talented. I love a lot of his films. Um, and a lot of his films deal like like Roma, like uh, Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion. Like they deal with the criticisms of a misogynistic world. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet he himself appears to be a, a misogynist, like a horrible one. So... I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Um, (laughs) I like Macbeth a lot. I like this film a lot. Um, And I I don't know. I don't know what more to say than that. Yeah, and that's fine. We we don't need to belabor this point. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. there is kind of a risk of almost obligatory denunciation. Um, You know, Roman Polanski has lived many a year. I I don't know that he has a track record of, you know... um, criminal sexual conduct, pedophilia, whatever you want to call it. Um, he did go through a period where I think you could say there was, there was, you know, decadence, there was, um, you know, a very tragic and, and terrible response to the situations that he had lived through. Um, the, the follow-up film that he made, which is kind of buried and, and very hard to, to find is called what, and it's a again a very misogynistic, leering, lascivious type of film. Uh, it's apparently, it's supposed to be like sort of a sex comedy, uh, starring Marcello Mastriani and a, another very attractive young woman whose name I can't remember at the moment. But it's very exploitive, and it really was kind of a a, a big fiasco, a big bomb. Uh, that he made right after Macbeth, and then right after that he made Chinatown, which is a, you know a very universally acclaimed masterpiece. And so, what a checkered career! And he's gone on to make some very impressive films since then, and over the last several decades. And uh, you know, he's still with us and still doing work, and he's lived a pretty fascinating life. Uh, the question is, what if he had done his jail time? What if he had just based the music and and uh, gone through the legal system and and that issue had been sort of addressed through the criminal justice system uh would that change how we would 
you know, view him now because he, he absconded from the law. And I think that's, that's a big piece of it is that he seems to have gotten away with his crimes. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough issue to resolve, but yeah, I've already spoken too much. William, what it was your take on Polanski? Give, give you a chance to address just those kind of issues that seem to be, you know, they, they need to be spoken of if we're going to do an episode on one of his films. I think I agree completely with Brad in the futility of trying to come up with any clear answer. When I originally saw this aspect on the outline, I think I was split between, well, I want to have no comment. I wish I could have no comment. Yeah. I wish I could abstain, uh, mm-hmm. but it feels irresponsible to, as you say, like we must dis- discuss it and must bring it up. Um, as far as, as far as I, I understand it, um, as far as the history of everything has gone um, and what, what the victim of the main accusation who is Samantha Geimer said is that at, you know, years, years later that this is the only thing and, you know, it's a terrible thing. And she thinks he regrets it. And that said, there are other accusations that have come up in the last couple decades that seem to muddy the waters thing events that happened in the sixties you know, around the time that um, Sharon Tate was alive and events that may have happened later. And it's all so cloudy and getting more confusing by the day. Um, And I I barely know what to say about it. But besides, I can guarantee you he is an asshole. I can guarantee (laughs) you that he's a rapist. And yes, (laughs) these are things that are true. And like the fact is that I think what makes this difficult is that the, there's an admission of guilt for the main crime in question. And mm-hmm. um, at this point, the man's 87. Uh, he's going to die probably in the next 10 years. I'm just going to guess. That's mm-hmm. a, I think that's fairly statistically sa- sound. Yeah. Um, w- w- the, a lot of the, the fracas about trying to get him back to America to do the case and be in a trial now just seems completely bizarre to me because yeah. it's so far after the fact. Yes, I think that if he had done the jail time, everything would be completely different. And he very Macbeth wise dug himself a deeper grave by escaping. And mm-hmm. um, and if it meant that none of the films he made after that point ever got made, it'd be fine by me because I've never seen them. <laughs> so so <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, I've only seen three of his films and it's this repulsion of Rosemary's baby. And, uh, and I've, I've never like wanted to see more that much because of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in fact, fearless vampire killers is one of maybe the three or four films I've ever shut off because I hated it so much. And I, at some point, yeah, I have to see Chinatown and I have to see cul-de-sac and knife in the water, but um, I'm always going to do it while appreciating everybody else's hard work. And I think Macbeth is a really great example of a film where in spite of the ingenuity that he added to it, there's still so much more collaboration going on. And we can see that in one of the great um, archival supplements on the disc. And there's, there's really no, it's despite the fact that we, we subscribe to an auteurist landscape where we say Polanski's Macbeth, as if that's the author of the film, I think we can all agree that, um, it's William Shakespeare's Macbeth as interpreted by this group of artists, including Roman Polanski. And I'm, I'm happy to, to be able to separate him slightly, separate the art from the artist slightly in this 
respect as far as this particular film is concerned. Um, but it is no less frustrating and it is really hard sometimes to, to reconcile um, your, even, your enjoyment of, of any of the films he's involved in. Yeah, I, I mean, we're at a moment where it, it is now no longer acceptable to say, well, that's how things were back then, you know. Um, <clears throat> even even like in the um, discussion of the Antonioni films uh, that I've done with Scott and Arik and Jordan, you know, we've had to deal with some of the kind of casual racism or even overt racism in those films. And, and you admire the movie, but you don't really just want to give a free pass because that's how things used to be. The truth is that is how things used to be, but but we don't want to kind of sanitize that or or whitewash it or just kind of shrug it off as like say la vie, you know. So um, and I think also you can make the case that Polanski himself was a bit of a hired hand. I mean, maybe earlier in his career he was a little bit more of the guy who you know had a bit of a vision. But I think you know I just watched Chinatown this afternoon actually for the first time, and it's it's oh, totally. Wow. It, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's one of my little blind spots, but I took I took care of it. Um, it's it's a very impressive film, but I I really do get the sense that this was not Polanski's vision. He was a guy who was very passionate and again very talented and very into directing films. And and those supplements that we'll maybe talk about in more detail really show him vigorously at work. And it's it's pretty impressive the way he throws himself into the project and commands the attention of, you know, dozens of people to keep them all focused on, on task. So, you know, you, you give him credit where it's due, but, but obviously uh, there's, there's more to the picture here. And, and there are many other talented folks putting these projects together. And I think that's pretty true over the course of his, you know, lengthy career, because when he was given, carte blanche to do his own thing sometimes it crashed and burned pretty spectacularly so uh i do so i did yeah, want i just wanted to recommend the tenant that's one we haven't uh uh dropped name dropped yet but that's a really great film mm -hmm. it's the third part of his apartment trilogy um so i highly recommend yeah. you guys check that one out if you haven't seen it already no, no, that's that's definitely one on my list, and I, I feel like he is a he is a director to be reckoned with, just for the power and and the um, you know the 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 magnitude of the films that he's been involved with. I mean, it's 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 there, but but obviously it's all complicated. So, <laughs> I appreciate you guys kind of sharing your thoughts on that. But let's turn to Macbeth, uh, Polanski's Macbeth, uh, the the seventy one film that that is at the center of our attention here. Um, William, what is your what's your impression? I mean, kind of give us your kind of opening thoughts on on the film, and and uh, where do you want to start the conversation as far as this particular interpretation of the text? It was mentioned uh, on the earlier portion, and I want to talk about it so much that I'm going to start with it. Okay, I think the greatest thing the film does is its development of Ross. I am so enamored with this development, um, which feels like the kind of thing that we may be able to credit to Tynan, which uh, I would mm -hmm. love. And it's the sort of thing I like to do anytime I'm directing um, one of any number of operas, which are always full of ancillary characters. And you're always trying to figure out who those people are. And having played many of those characters in my life, I'm always desperate to find some sort of through line and the fact that they were able to give John Stride this meaty role where 
the role doesn't seem meaty on the page. And I think, I think of all of the times a production of Macbeth must have existed where someone was cast as Ross and didn't like, and kind of phoned it in kind of fell. Oh, I wish I was playing Banquo or Macbeth or something and, right. and try hard enough. Mm-hmm. And I, in rereading the play and observing very carefully that the, it, there's a minimal amount of emendation to the text in this particular film. There's a little bit of juggling around the end of Act 4 and the beginning of Act 5 in terms of what happens when and in what order. But except for cuts, there isn't that much reassignment as you might see in the Wells version, which is almost completely reassigned all over the place. Yeah, movie. yeah, it's and very juggled. I, I had my, um, in rewatching the film, I had my um, Arden copy with me. Just I, I really recommend the Arden Shakespeare editions. And I had that copy with me and I continually kept going, there's no way that's Ross's line. And it always was. Hmm. There, there are a few instances like at the very end of the film when they, when he hails Malcolm as the king that originally is assigned to all as a crowd line, which never really works too well anyway to have too many alls in your show. It tends to be very artificial unless that's what you're right. going for. But so much of the text is Ross's. And to see that they were able to read, a, like read, put that extra effort into reading into this character and how John Stride's able to ride those lines. I think my favorite moment of this through line, uh, maybe two, is that um, the worst scene in the play, or like the least interesting scene, is the scene between Malcolm and Macduff. And Ross shows up and explains that Macduff's family has been murdered. And sort of that's his moment in the film to, 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 re, to, to choose a new side. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. completely reinvigorates, uh, mostly also by cutting the first seven pages of the scene, which is basically Malcolm figuring out that Macduff is pretty cool. Um, that that's just gone and we just we focus on the Ross aspect. But the other thing is, and this is the one time Ross is really thrown into something new, is um, Macbeth hires his two murderers. But in the play, a third murderer suddenly shows up, presumably just to make sure it all goes according to plan. And this third murderer character is turned into Ross. This mm-hmm. is a character that is sometimes Macbeth, sometimes Satan. It could be any one of the number of other characters in the play, but here it's Ross. And there's a moment where, as Fleance escapes, Banquo readjusts his focus towards Ross and Fleance, who are across the water. And right, which opens up his back to the axe right. attack. Right, and right. it does not seem to me like Ross is going to kill Fleance. No. It seems to me like Ross is there as well, uh, nominally as Macbeth's spy to make sure it happens, but then secondarily just as his own spy to kind of watch, to really watch and see what's happening. He he is always watching and he's always checking out what's going on. And I never, I get the feeling that, you know, Benko may have just, Benko shoots an arrow into Ross's horse and it ends up being a futile gesture for him and makes his death even more tragic. Because mm-hmm. he ends up focusing his last breath on murdering a horse that wasn't going to affect him and his son in the first place, likely. Uh, Ross right. may have very well let Fleance go and went, now it's my time to change sides because Fleance has escaped and some of Macbeth's plans are, are falling and we can see some adjustment there. And little moments like that, um, that greatly add to the uh, the moment and, and kind of make Ross my favorite son of a bitch in the in the show because <laughs> you can't actually yeah. you can't, he's such a duplicitous character in, in this film in a way you did never expected that when Macbeth throws an axe and it knocks off uh, Ross's helmet in the last scene 
Ross looks shocked as if no, no one's ever supposed to be looking at me. He, right. His face seems to say, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be in the background just waiting to be in power. It's like all of those, those famous characters in swashbuckling films where they're controlling the king from behind, that those are really the villain. And you get the impression that this is that kind of situation. And I'm so, I, I love this aspect of the film so much that it's able to create this extra leading role or extra major through line out of thin air, basically. Well, yeah, because I think Ross really in the text is he just kind of advances things. He just kind of says stuff that kind of keeps the plot moving ahead. Um, but a lot of his his uh, scenes here are just reactions. He just sort of is present at these very poignant moments and giving knowing glances and and kind of uh, he he's registering registering awareness of what's going on here. And because he is, you know kind of silently strategizing his next counter move, his next advance, it brings this uh, kind of element of real politic into the, into the proceedings where, you know, he's the shrewd conniver who's laying low, but he's a snake in the grass who will make his move when the time is right. And you don't necessarily get that overtly from the Shakespearean source material. Uh, that's an interesting and kind of a brilliant innovation. I, I, I agree that Tynan, uh, who I think was much more deeply immersed in Shakespeare, probably introduced. I'm sure Polanski was in on it and said, yeah, let's go for it. And they collaborated to to kind of elevate that character. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, that's a it, great observation. It shows the sign of, of a dramaturg because um, that's the kind of situation where you're giving the actor a gift. And I've been in productions, like I said, of, of characters and operas who are similarly functional. And every once in a while, a director sees that this character could be one the audience tracks, or mm -hmm. it could be one that just serves the purpose of bringing in the food or whatever it is. <laughs> and I love that they, they make this move because as a dramaturg, you see in the play, Ross in one scene is announcing things. Um, he's at the dinner and he's saying, our, our, our Lord is not well. Like he's on that Macbeth side. And then in the next act, he's the one showing up in England to tell Macduff his family has died. And as a dramaturg, you look at that and go, this character is inconsistent. And most people wouldn't even notice the characters even there. And you need to have that kind of eye to flesh out even the minorest characters to reconcile what could be considered a plot hole. That why does he suddenly change sides? Because it is in the text that he changes sides, but it doesn't really seem to matter very much. And through visual um, aid, through acting and giving him close-ups and positioning him in, in crucial scenarios... Um, I also notice he's the first person to wake up when Macduff cries horror, horror in that kind of room of hay. He's in the very back of the room. He's the first person to wake up. So he's the most attentive character in the entire scenario um, in a way that in other productions, which we can focus on, you know, other characters are brought out differently. And um, I, I think this is the kind of thing that as far as I'm concerned, if you produce Macbeth, you must give serious consideration to, to, to taking on this particular concept and, and maybe finding your own version of it. Mm -hmm. Isn't he? Excellent. Isn't he also um, opening? He opens the doors to Macduff's castle and allows. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. Which, which I actually think is, is another good case of a plot hole because in the in the script, um, he says he's talking to uh, Lady Macduff, um, affectionately calling her cuz, and says goodbye to them and gives them all the best well wishes. And no more than three lines later in the Shakespeare, the murderers show up, and just the brevity of that 
exchange, I mean, has to imply some sort of collusion is, because there's, it's like impossible to think that he didn't see them coming in. Is it? I, I haven't read the text in like since I was a teenager, but is it in the text that he opens the doors to Castle Macduff, or is it? It, it, it is not because is not. of the lim, the, lim, the limited amount of stage directions that survive for this play, especially. Um, it basically is just Ross exits, and then within a line or two, they've arrived. Wow! And it's just it's there. The the scene. In fact, there's more time in the Polanski film because of all the action that is shown, which is something that he did want to go for. He he does mention in one of the special features that these stage directions often say something as vague as the character dies is slain, and that leaves a lot of room to inter- interpretation, especially for a filmmaker when you want to remove action that is normally off stage and and return it to the stage the murder of um the murder happens such that the son says mother i am killed and then in the script he says please run away the mother runs away and we never see the mother get killed we never see the rest of the family we're only told it later by ross so much of the action of that sequence like a lot of the rest of the violence is not in shakespeare but is only described and it's a testament to what what sort of things you can affect in a film version of a Shakespeare play because of the um, the flexibility. There's a great point made in the Arden book, um, Sandra Clark and Pamela Mason's um, Arden edition, third edition, where they're mentioning how editors over time had in Shakespeare um, editions added stage directions of their own choosing in order to um, make things clearer. But um, in this edition, they, they very accurately, I think, make the case that they should be left as vague and simple and perhaps um, as empty as they were found in the original folio in order to allow a maximum of interpretive uh, leeway and potential for the director. Yeah, because the staging really does create lots of opportunities for, you know, violent clashes and and, um, with, you know, improved sort of special effects, if you will, whether that's on stage or even on screen. Um, you, you, and, and maybe a, a greater candor about depicting violence, uh, which certainly Polanski was taking advantage of uh, as kind of as cinema was kind of opening up in, in macabre ways. Uh, he, you know, you could, you could go for the blood, you could go for the, the shock, the horror, the gore and all of that. Uh, whereas, you know, that's a, certainly a, it's a more difficult thing to convincingly render uh, on the stage in, in the Elizabethan times or, or in high school productions or whatever, you know? So I, I, I like that idea of, of kind of giving the you know, maximum leeway to the, uh, interpreter, uh, the directors and, and performers to say, like, how, how are we going to flesh this out? So to speak, uh, Brad, again, you want to kind of follow up on any of that, or do you have a certain other angle that you want to talk about the, the film itself? What are some of your uh, impressions of of this of this movie um what i really like and i actually i credit my partner fred for just coining it a few minutes ago is um just the this film feels like a very like lived in um version uh where where he's fred said the the best ways of of performing shakespeare are the ways that make it seem so natural and um, as if the as if it's a conversation that you're watching that just takes place in the era. Um, a great sort of counterpoint 
for what Polanski does here is Wells's version, which is like ramped up to 11, like full on fucking Wagner <laughs> craziness, um, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. which I love, um, but it's different. It's a different approach. It's in this version, he is much more interested in making uh, the medieval world uh, feel real and tangible to all of us rather than mm -hmm. um, some sort of heightened version of it that we have seen in uh, paintings or, you know, etches of the of, of medieval time period. Um, there's a great little tidbit on the special features like the modern uh, documentary where, where he talks about uh, uh, Macbeth and Banquo, the two actors are playing them are like in rain and on a horse. And um, the uh, who's the other guy, the other writer guy, what's his name again? Tynan. 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 Yeah. Tynan. Yeah. Where mm -hmm. Tynan's giving Polanski like, Oh, they should have this in flux and it should sound like this. And he's like, they're two fucking guys on a horse in the rain. They're going to talk the way they're going to talk. And that's sort of like <laughs> right. the approach I think he took to like the film on mass, whereas like all of the, the you know, the beautiful uh, um, poetry, the soliloquies, all of that is kind of just given to you in a bit more as is um, mm -hmm. rather than. Uh, than the high theatrical style of something like uh, Orson Welles's version. Um, yeah, no, I, I think Polanski's really trying to humanize, or Polanski, Tynan, the whole crew are really trying to humanize these characters to think, yeah, they may speak in the, you know, the adroitness of a, of a high Elizabethan stagecraft and all of that, but the delivery is is not going to be stop everything while I you know enunciate with uh, you know supreme clarity and oratory you know these these majestic poetic lines. Um, but I think I think the delivery is 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 pretty pretty solid. You know, it's not some kind of mumbled jumble of of verbiage. I you know. They, they, the, the characters bring their lines to life. I, I I think that they 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 found the right balance of naturalizing the the dialogue, um, and and they also did some pretty judicious trimming. I mean, there are definitely uh, you know excised uh, portions. Uh, they they kind of zero in on on the meat of the text, and and take away some of the elaboration and the frills that uh, you know make for great performances when you've got an actor who's capable of rising above mere recitation of the lines uh, to really make these words come alive. But, you know, there is also the danger of because of the the poetry is at such, such an elevated level that you do have people out there who just kind of memorize the lines and deliver them. And, and, and so you're kind of stuck listening to them kind of go through the rote, you know, uh, the monologues and all of that. So yeah, to me, I think the fact that this feels very inhabited, you, you feel the mud, the grime, the grit, the rain, yes. you know, the, and, and the calamity of it. I mean, these are, these are murderous, violent killers really that have just been, um, legitimized because that's just the way of the world at that time. Uh, you know, we kind of, again, explored some of the same topic in our first segment, but, you know, with, with all the gloss of nobility and titles and, and, you know, rank and, and, and all of that, these people ascended to their various thrones and, and, uh, you know, honors by 
brutal acts of violence. <laughs> that is the way that they made their reputation. And I think Polanski is very interested in exploring that dynamic. Again, you know, he's lived through violence on both a very personal level and even historically, you know, living in, you know, occupied Poland and growing up in the World War II years and and seeing, you know, these empires that have just kind of come and ravished his native land and and you know he's traveled the world now and he kind of sees how the the powers that be operate and he sees in Shakespeare's um, kind of almost mythic telling of all of this um, shadows and echoes uh, that continue to resound through uh, the contemporary world that he was speaking to when he made this movie. I, I think, um, I, I don't know how much you guys talked about uh, the blood and gore. I didn't listen to the first half. Um, yeah. But I do think there's a, like, there's a very uh, great through line. Like this film, I think, is more influential than people really give it credit for. Like, like the, there's a lot of Game of Thrones that's going on here, mm, um, mm-hmm. especially with its level of heightened gore um, and, and the, you know, palace intrigue accompanied by that brutality. Um, that there is no sort of uh, shying away from the killing of Duncan, the killing of Banquo. The like the big scene for me that really de- nails this is the massacre at the Castle Macduff, which we had just mm. mentioned a little bit. But there, like that scene, feels like the Red Wedding, and uh, there's there's such chilling moments when Macduff and her son are just like making their beds and stuff and you just hear people screaming in the courtyard and you know they haven't heard it yet and and it's just like the threat is slowly approaching when when the uh, soldiers actually come and arrive and one of them sort of gently grabs uh mcduff's son and she doesn't know what's happening and we well unless you've read the text but we don't really know what's happening and he, they just have those little sadistic grins on their face, like they have evil plot and intention, but they haven't quite executed it. Exactly, yeah. it, to us in the screen. And and uh, Polanski shoots from one angle, the kid slowly walking across the, the room, the fireplace, saying, uh, Mother, he has killed me. And it's only in the reverse that we mm-hmm. get uh, the same... Um, reaction that lady Macduff says sees because in the reverse we see the stab wound on the kid's back it's starting and to the bleed. blood seeping through right right it's, it's and, la- and lady yeah. Macduff touches his back in that same moment so she finds out the same moment that we the audience find out like the the full extent of the horror and then that the rest of that scene just ratches it up with the fire and and the just the dead bodies of her children as she's running through room to room in the castle so i i think that there i mean i I know a lot of this film gets talked about with the murders uh with the manson murders and they're kind of Mm -hmm. inseparable um but i really feel that this film um pushed sort of that level of medieval violence uh, in cinema that we had not really seen before. And we can still continue to see uh, uh, things influenced by it today. Well, and just and just the compounding, I mean, just, you know, both the depiction of these atro- atrocities, these these horrible deeds, but the fact that in order to secure the gains that have already been obtained, you know, I mean, it's not just the murder of Duncan the king, um, it's it's all the other crimes that uh, Macbeth and and in 
kind of complicity Lady Macbeth committed in order to kind of maintain their grasp on this on this illicitly gained power. Um, and and again, there's a commentary there that you know how much you know talk about Vietnam, talk about any number of other international. Uh, power plays that were happening at the time and have happened in the decades since and and throughout history where because uh, some group, some individual in a position of power needs to maintain that that advantage, that that perch, um, many, many more people, innocent people who have really nothing to do with the central um, conquest or the, 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 the pursuit of that of that power, uh, they end up dying just because they are obstacles in the way or because they are connected to somebody else who, you know, in this kind of warped system of, of justice needs to be punished or needs to be eliminated or put down. I mean, that is a, a, a horrible aspect of, of the reality that we all live in and whether it's touched our lives personally uh, you know, through either random acts or through very deliberate premeditated killings or whether we're just observers um, and hoping that our our destiny doesn't really have to involve experiencing that on a personal level. It's, it's something that we have to grapple with. And I think that's really one of the powerful resounding messages of this film is just how, you know, horrible, unconscionable violence is just a tool wielded by you know, people whose consciences have been seared because they feel, you know, in their pursuit of ambition or the, you know, the, the advantages they've already gained by, you know, ascending to a certain level of influence and, and prestige and privilege, uh, they have to, you know, keep distributing the pain uh, lest some other rival come up and take their place. It's, it's a, kind of one of those sad things that's almost easy to take for granted, uh, because the story is so familiar and when you really think about it, it's just, it's horrible yes. <laughs> and, 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 and so tragic that that is kind of this unavoidable, um, you know, factor that we just have to cope with in, in living this life. I, Even more so than, uh, than it just being a thesis for the film. Yeah, it's also yeah. an essential choice that has to be made because the witches historically present a major problem for mm -hmm. directing this this piece because uh i mean even over, i mean to think of the time this was written you know this is inspired by the ascent of james the sixth of scotland to become james the first in the beginning of the jacobian period it's the start it's the period when witches would be burnt it's a period mm -hmm. after the gunpowder plot which is referenced explicitly in the text even though it happens hundreds of years later than when it's set mm -hmm. and um you have to find a way to, to, to approach the witches and what they do. And I think that what you decide to do with the witches determines how you treat the violence and free will at large for the rest of the piece. Oh yeah. In a way where, where, where Wells is taking a much more um, spiritual approach in terms of like a lack of free will, a, a being trapped by those outside forces. When the witches here don't evaporate into thin air, they just walk away it is, it's easy to laugh at just like how Macbeth and Banquo do. And in making explicit things like the execution of the earlier Thane of Cawdor and Duncan's death and all of these acts of violence, including the death of Macbeth, which is originally just Macduff and Macbeth exit fighting and then his head returns. It's like, it's not even, 
that famous moment, though often staged, is not in the Shakespeare. And as you're both saying that you're you're dealing with um, a truth and Polanski ends with the Donald Bain epilogue in order mm -hmm. to prove that it's people, not these outside maniacal forces and the people and their faults and their deficiencies morally are what made them susceptible and perhaps even on the radar of, I mean, these, these three witches who are going about their, their kind of bland right on the beach know about Macbeth and they probably know he's coming because of his propensity for what's to come. The other question is, how has Macbeth thought about these things before? Has Lady Macbeth thought about these things before? And you get the impression that the violence inherent in those two characters, for example, um, are not just the, a piece of it. I mean, the fact is that the murderers of, of Macduff and Macduff's wife and child, they don't have to be quite so nasty as they are, but they are. Mm -hmm. And, and there's an interesting for moment. It. Right. There's an interesting moment in the play that is cut here where, um, the character of Old Seaward, who's really only ever seen training on the on, in England earlier on, um, his son is murdered. He's the first one to fight Macbeth when they arrive at uh, Dunsinane at the end, and Macbeth ends up stabbing him kind of from behind, but in the front of his neck, as the finishing blow. And in the play, um, there's a lot more you know ebb and flow in these scenes in the play, and um, Seaward learns that his son has been killed, but asks whether or not his wounds were in the front or the back because if they were in the back, then his son died running away and is not, did not die a worthy death. And you're looking at a world here where worthy deaths don't even seem possible just because of the cruelty of everything. You just mentioned Brad, the son who gets stabbed from behind, gets backstabbed by this cruel murderer or the very beginning scene where a man is just brutally attacking this man's back. Who's lying on the ground. This isn't a world like Shakespeare's where the, the, maybe those slight cuts are actually making it a little less noble. Uh, Macduff even can often come off as a much more noble character than Terence Baylor portrays him here, where uh, his ve vengeful ire um, comes to a head in a way where sometimes people wonder why Macduff left in the first place, including Lady Macduff. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. the you kind of feel here that that the um, that you're not expecting anybody to do the right thing, and I think there's a moment that exemplifies this for me, a staging in particular. After everybody goes in to see Duncan's body, um, Malcolm and Donald Bain are left at his beer, basically, uh, in a two-shot, and they immediately decide, we can't you know, consort with these people. Everybody else says, let's get dressed and then meet again in the hallway, and we'll talk about this and figure out who did it. They just say, we got to get out of here, because they know they can die at any moment. And it's like that's a detail in the text that, that the whole film is infected with that basically everybody's in constant threat. Even poor Satan, who's just saying, please don't leave. We have to defend ourselves. Gets shot in the head, not in Shakespeare mm. at all. <laughs> right, right, the, head yeah. with the crossbow. And, uh, and, and I think probably the, the only moment of, of violence that is almost so grotesque, it provokes proper nervous laughter. Um, but I think that, that the, the cruelty of the world that's being set up here and the cyclical natures of human cruelty uh, de-emphasize uh, the witch element in terms of how powerful it is in controlling what's about to happen. They are more of a tool to be used by people. They are the monkey's paw. They are the thing that's going to be used and misused and lead people to their own downfall. Um, that being said, all that I totally agree with. I did want I, I wanted to 
uh, say that Polanski still kind of has his cake and eats it too because there are some really fun horror shows in this movie. Um, oh, absolutely! That really, uh, the really are like the '70s horror film sort of notes at their best. And as sort of grim and serious as this film is, and we have been talking about, um, he's still having fun and that's what i (laughs) that's what i really also like like (laughs) these this vision of um the the witches the second time when Macbeth returns he explodes that from just you know three old women around a cauldron to this like massive witches sabbath that we have seen in medieval etchings and and famous paintings um the the ghost of banquo is so much fun he has like different wounds on his face every single time we cut to the ghost with him holding that the owl on his arm just just some great uh nightmare horror show imagery that uh reminds us that this is the same polanski who made um you know repulsion rosemary's baby he's great at these dreamscapes and and in some ways this is sort of a continuation of those apartment films right we're in we're inside a trap space and there's wild surrealism that may or may not be actually happening going on here so it's it's great to see him flex those muscles as well I was fascinated to read in one of the articles that may be linked here from uh, the literature film uh, journal, which said that Polanski um, said that Banquo in this film as a ghost is in Macbeth's mind, which um, even shows you that the paranoia is incredibly vivid. I I think that that moment is still left to interpretation by the viewer and is not explicit in the way that maybe uh, he intended. But it's it's more explicit in Wells's version where Banquo is the only person at the table Right. And and here there, I mean, it's it's shot so, so wonderfully um, with the seat clearly open and Macbeth saying, oh, well, you know, the table is full. (laughs) So it ends up really, really working to to the film's advantage to obfuscate those things. And, And the portrayal of the witches, too, is is far from the bearded, craggy hags. It usually is and and feels more like these would have been the actual poverty stricken witches of the of of that era if they exist. And that there is a young one that promotes their own little cycle of of regeneration, and that there are so many of them promotes their this the otherworldly nature um, that can exist in all sorts of dimensions because they do end up disappearing after uh, trapping him in sort of a, a Burnham Wood of his own mind. Let's talk a little bit about the gender dynamics here, because I think you know both in Lady Macbeth and the witches, uh, we we have sort of the female counterpart to what could be said in today's turn of analogy to be kind of Shakespeare's study of toxic masculinity. I mean, these are basically a bunch of dudes running wild, and in in some ways, the witches. And Lady Macbeth are are really, I, I guess there's Lady Macduff too, but th- those are the, the the prominent female voices in in this whole, you know, nasty bit of business. And, and the witches, as you've already sort of uh, implied there, William, uh, are impoverished, uh, outcasts. They're not respected, not taken seriously. In fact, they're they're scandalized, and and that was certainly true in Shakespeare's own time as well as as you know, witch hysteria and persecutions and everything were kind of 
in vogue at the time. So, you know, he's both playing to popular tastes. He, he, he is having some fun with it, just with the, you know, the cackling uh, incantations and all of that. And, and there's definitely some, some, some elements there that are kind of fun to revel and then, and just kind of, you know, exploit for the entertainment and the shock value and all of that. But, but what, what do you guys have to say just about the, the feminine sensibility? Uh, we, we, we can talk about the witches. We can talk about Lady Macbeth and, and her um, route to securing some kind of um, voice, some kind of, um, what's what's the word i'm looking for just kind of you know just exercising her own power i guess is just a way of saying uh i can never be a queen but i can i can be the accompaniment here um is is are the witches kind of a proto-feminist influence here a critique of of the you know very testosterone driven uh you know perpetual warfare that's afflicting the society they're doing us a service by getting rid of these people, aren't they? Yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they're, they're helping to to rid the world of, of these connivers. Lady, Lady Macbeth is a fascinating part. I recommend, again, the Arden edition, which spends a significant amount of time in its introduction discussing various interpretations of Lady Macbeth and the um, feminist implications and the lack of feminist implications in various popular versions. And I do like the the interpretation as seen here because one of the difficulties of this role is um, developing while off stage and turning a corner when no one sees it happen. Um, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth spend most of the second half of the material um, pretty but completely separate from each other, and the play doesn't even um, have a moment when he encounters her corpse, as you see here, and. There's there's a great moment of this where I think the the, the design and the uh, of of makeup and hair can actually help a performer because when she goes and um, she goes off and returns the knives and comes back her hair and her face have completely changed from when it was when she left because she previously said um, uh, she called his purpose infirm and was insulting him and then as soon as she bloodies herself it's one of the few moments of of things that are kind of left to our imagination because um, it's almost like at the time he has to um, have his moment uh, making sure Banquo doesn't walk up the wrong staircase. And there's one element of, of the film that I actually think it, it, I might dislike a little bit, which is in that jumbled portion towards the end of act four and beginning of act five, where this the England scene and the sleepwalking scene, a lot of these get quite refigured and there's an extra scene, which isn't in Shakespeare of her discussing um, or mentioning King Duncan and sort of being overheard mumbling about this. And it seems like that moment is added in order to give the actress another point on the line between start and end, because otherwise she the, the gap between her previous scene and the sleepwalking scene is an incredibly large gesture. Most people have to convey her um, incoming insanity at the end of the banquet scene which is quite a large leap to get to from the sleepwalking right from the banquet scene, that her husband's infirmity is causing hers to exceed his in that respect. And um, I think this extra scene is actually um, more, it's maybe just buttering it too much. And, um, and though I think that they needed to, if you were, if you take the, the, the play and you watch that, there's like maybe 20 minutes of the film that's just not quite as sequential as the rest of it. 
And I think that's the only place where it feels like they're kind of over-dramaturging it and fumbling it a little bit. And I think that it um, it, it takes away from the performance for, for Lady Macbeth in this case. Um, her, her performance uh, is interesting, Francesca Annis. I think in um, how useful they both are, of course, is one of the mm-hmm. main talking points. Um, but it's also interesting how they're clearly so in love at the beginning and she she's waiting for his letter and she runs to his side. But every time they're in bed later on, they're just talking about murder and it's, it's so dour and grim and sexless. And I, you get the feeling that Lady Macbeth um, declares herself unsexed when she says, unsex me here. And from almost that point on, it's like this gradual distancing of their relationship. And and I think a scene like that, or in Wells, when um, Wells meets her after the sleepwalking scene, kind of do a disservice to the way it's about a relationship um, separating. Uh, and I think one of the interesting aspects of it is, is how and in what regards is that separation mutually assured? And I think that Macbeth is really the one to cause it. And, you know, he... He engineers Banquo's death and tells her, uh, he calls her Chuck, and he's like, hey, wait, applaud the deed after it's done, lady, because I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what I'm up to until I know it's finished. And um, she manages to not know. She does find out, however, of the death of Macduff's family, but you warrant that could just be from um, rumor mills and hearing things about, about town uh, when she says the Thane of Fife had a wife in her sleepwalking scene. Um it's it's a it's a fascinating character that I think that um, is is it's not the first unanswerable question you've asked so far. <laughs> uh, I guess so, instead of an answer, I just gave you here are things I've observed. So maybe yeah. some, maybe Brad, you have something more than I do. Um, I just like I think your the your criticism of the buttering up scene, I think is just probably I, I mean it's is it a flaw is it of shakespeare's time there is kind of a lot of misogyny at least i feel with the character of lady macbeth like she is this plotting machiavellian uh character for the first half of the play and then sort of once the deed is done and then after that banquet scene she's like i'm insane for no reason like like why would just because she did something evil makes her go insane and that's i mean that is very much an idea of of what they what they thought of women of the time and you know it's sort of baked into that narrative it doesn't really make sense like why can't she just go on still being um you know machiavellian genius through the rest of the play why does she have to go insane um But I, it, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to this. It is an unanswerable question because it's just sort of how they viewed women at the time when Shakespeare wrote this. When the, at the time when the story is, you know, allegedly takes place, right? Um, women didn't have a lot of agency, uh, especially compared to now, um, and it's it's pretty gross. <laughs> well, and I think there is uh, even historically been a um, a tendency to make. Lady Macbeth, even the most prominently wicked character in the entire story, like she's the one who, you know, drives Macbeth over the edge. He's he's ambivalent. He's kind of second guessing himself. He's the one who wants to call off the plot, and she, you know, and, and her, you know, harpy like goading, you know, her shrewish insistence that he 
man up and go go through with it uh she you know becomes kind of a an eve like scapegoat <laughs> you know it wasn't me it was the woman that you gave me uh who made me sin and i i i actually feel like this film puts the burden of responsibility uh back on macbeth i mean you know lady macbeth certainly has her part in in the scheming and the plot um and i wouldn't say she's exactly a sympathetic character with the way she's portrayed here but i i i have detected sort of a uh like i say a tendency or a bias to sort of make her the you know the the evil um source of of all of the wickedness that transpires uh almost absolving macbeth because if his wife had perhaps been a little bit more reasonable he wouldn't have you know acted as desperately as he did uh you know macbeth is the real killer here he he really is the one who owns the the burden of responsibility for for not just the killing of duncan but all the other murders and atrocities that follow i think Um, i think a lot of that has to do with um polanski insisting on showing us the murder of duncan like sure. he is the the person who commits the original sin as a, mm-hmm. as opposed to what you were just saying the eve like scapegoats right of, of right, women committing right. the original sin yeah and again i going back to the witches i i i, I do you know i guess i i kind of fall into the idea that these witches are are shrewd and observant and they understand the ways of men the ways of warriors the way of kingdoms and and uh, all the corruption and duplicity that that they are built upon and since they don't have the capacity to um you know overtly rebel and overthrow the system they're going to kind of subvert it from this angle to which they've been kind of relegated that they they can uh you know utter their incantations and summon the dark forces and and mess with people's minds, you know, and and I think that is a very fascinating uh, sort of lens to interpret all of that. Uh, whether there's a true supernatural occult force at work here, or they are just kind of supremely um, intuitive in in recognizing the ambitions that drive these these men, and kind of work those angles to the destruction and the destabilization of this uh, corrupt empire. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating little back and forth exchange that we can debate and, and ponder endlessly. So uh, that gets us back to, I guess, I think, uh, anyways, we're, we're kind of here to talk about just sort of the, the Criterion release, the package. We've talked about some of the special features. Do we have any comments we want to talk about as far as uh, what kind of makes us a nicely rounded disc uh, disc package? I, I don't think it's available on the Criterion channel right now. You can rent the film on Prime Video and maybe some other sources, but uh, the channel itself has not made it available. So this is one that if you want to, Added to the collection, I highly recommend that you do. But what do you guys think about the, just the overall presentation of uh, of the Blu-ray? Um, I, I I love this Blu-ray. Um, it has a lot of great features, the special features on it. Um, the new documentary, uh, um, Toil and Trouble: Making of Macbeth, is definitely um, one of their typical uh, slickly, you know, very nicely polished new documentaries where they get as many people back to talk uh, to talk about 
how they made this and including Polanski, which is kind of surprises me. Um, but it's really great. I think the gem of the special features is the making of uh, Polanski meets Macbeth, which is a very candid. Someone had a 16 millimeter film, you know, running around interviewing extras, interviewing, um, you know, people doing all the cooking. And it's and it's just great footage of uh, Polanski actually directing and directing some of the more difficult sequences in the film. So you really get an idea of filmmaking and you really get an idea of how um, complicated and involved it is and all the different pieces um, and players on the stage, um, but but <laughs> that all have their role. And um, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a kind of I'm a, I am a filmmaker myself, but when you're on set, you know, you have actors, you have behind the scenes crew. Um, and there's a certain sort of like once the cameras are rolling, there's certain there's a kind of unification where like it doesn't matter how much attention or how much money you you're making or anything everyone has a part to play and when uh, when uh, the camera is rolling and you can see the shot and every single person knows exactly what they are contributing to make that shot happen it's just sort of this unifying equalizing thing and i think that that's one of the great things that this documentary uh conveys yeah it really it, it really felt like magic i mean the the different angles and shots of the big uh, Macbeth versus Macduff showdown you know that was a pretty pretty riveting just to see all of the things that they have to come into place and and all of the details I mean you know Plansky looking at all the all the stuff that's happening in the background and the shoes on the one guy that don't quite fit you know <laughs> are going to be this horrible distraction if that actually makes it into the final print you know uh, and just just his commanding presence as he's you know really keeping you know dozens of people you know riveted on his every word and and making the most of this time i mean you know there's there's a lot at stake there's a lot of money being spent every every minute every hour that you're in production when you've got everybody standing around you got to make things happen you know <laughs> it's uh it, it it was it's really one of the very best making of uh type of features that i've seen in in recent memory it, it it's quite compelling it's great. I think that those contemporaneous, uh, more fly on the wall and uh, less polished archival material supplements are always better than anything you can make today. And I would, ra I would rather watch um, anything like this where the interviews are not forced and they feel like somebody just talking about their lives, especially uh, the man who became an extra. Oh, yeah, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> Road with the Hell's Angels. <laughs> and uh, like that's why this and Chris Marker's AK and the great making of Autumn Sonata are, are more interesting to me than any interview or any modern supplement criterion ever puts together. So um, I tend to tend to like it when all the supplements are weird old stuff and not new create creations. Um, and I think that this is a, a really great show of, of what you can do. Besides, it also does show... Um, a little bit of the the machinations of how this thing came to be, how difficult it, it was, and uh, what actually it takes to to, to make this. Uh, the special effects sections are are particularly interesting, I thought, and uh, uh, it, it it spoils a little bit of the magic. So I always recommend to see a film a couple times before diving into um, supplements. I mean, probably in general, usually, but um, I was very very glad to to finally give that feature a look this week. 
Excellent. Oh, let's talk a little bit about um, other renditions of Macbeth. Uh, Rip William, you kind of mentioned the operatic versions. I think Giuseppe Verdi's uh, opera of Macbeth is probably the most famous. Are there other kind of musical, theatrical, operatic renditions, or is that the one that you had in mind when you well, that? well, yeah. So um, Verdi's Macbeth uh, is an interesting opera in terms of where it fits into Verdi's life. I think it it's one of the few operas that feels like early Verdi is about to finally explode into middle Verdi, which is Rigoletto, Trovatore, and Traviata. And um, the early period of bel canto singing um, was abandoned by Verdi in a revolutionary way with this piece where he he said, I want ugly singers and I don't want them to sing. He said to the singers that I want you to sing this. Uh, I want you to be more a slave to the poet than to the composer. And he was the composer. So uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's an interesting situation because Verdi, of course, had never read, at least at this point, the, the, the opera, I mean, the play in English. And I don't think his English was ever good enough that he could have read it properly. So he was always reading it in translation. And in adapting the work, I mean, that's what he knew. He knew an Italian version of the piece. But still, his uh, he has observing what an opera um, takes of it. Another stage adaptation can reveal a lot about the material itself and other interpretations. Verdi said that there are three characters in the piece, which are Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, and the witches. And I, I think that maybe in Polanski's film, it's, it doesn't feel like that's necessarily the triumvirate in quite the same way. Um, maybe in Wells' film, I think maybe it does a little more uh, feel closer to that Agreed. triumvirate. And um, so with Macbeth, Macbeth, the Verdi opera, which he titles Macbeth, even though the character is Macbetto, um, he opens it with a chorus of witches, which are all in... Uh, which are which just split into three groups, all of whom collectively sing I, as if they're all one unit. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of these uh, operas, he's going to greatly elide a lot of the material. And Duncan doesn't speak. Uh, Duncan doesn't sing. He The only major characters that sing are Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, Macduff, and Banquo. Those are the, that's the four main principal roles that you can play in, in the show. And um, even then, Macduff and Banquo are really supporting characters with one big solo. Uh, much of the opera is the bulk of it is duet material and big, the big crowd scenes, the banquet, the reveal of Duncan's death, the ending battle. Um, in fact, the, the weakest section of the opera, as I remember seeing it last time I saw it, well, I guess the first and last time I saw it was at the Met a few years ago, and I didn't like it at all because the performance was bad. But the, the weakest section of the opera is the Macduff scene, which is the one where he's in England. And instead of, uh, even though in the, in the opera, Macduff's family is killed, we only ever find that out when Lady Macbeth kind of mentions it in her sleepwalking. So Macduff, his motivation is much more political because um, the opening of the England scene is the chorus singing about how um, downtrodden the populace is as if Macbeth's reign is actually causing havoc on anybody besides nobles. And I think that there's something quite admirable about focusing on the citizens of Scotland and England at the time and seeing how uh, this, this territory was going to feel uh, so torn apart by poor leadership. But I don't think that really scans in terms of, I mean, if you watch the Polanski film, you don't feel like there are any citizens to be downtrodden in the first place besides cannon fodder. But it's you just don't gangs 
battling with each other. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that that's, that's almost more interesting is like the fact that it's like for the people downstairs, they probably don't even notice the difference. I mean, they're just as happy. They just want to save their lives. They all right. stand and ship. So the scene strikes a very weird chord because McDuff, McDuff sings a big aria, his big solo is about like how he wants to inspire the populace. And it's just a very strange scene. And, mm. and I, I, I never really cared for it, but I must recommend uh, of course, you can listen to Maria Callas live. There's a live recording from La Scala that um, is notable. Uh, but the Met Opera did um, a, a really important pair of recordings in 1959, both live and then in the studio conducted by Eric Leinsdorf, which um, was sung by Leonard Warren, um, Lena Rizinek, Jerome Hines, and Carlo Bergonzi, which is four of the great singers of the middle of the 20th century. And uh, I listened to that recording uh, today, the studio one, and it's it's powerful. And I think that um, anybody who knows the story of Macbeth would greatly enjoy listening to that recording. And even if not following along with the libretto, following along with the Wikipedia synopsis of the opera, just to make <laughs> sure you're checking in with the beats. It's, it's pretty faithful to to the source material and um, quite fascinating in in the slight differences that that emerge um, from one medium to another. Uh, you don't have quite the same ability to flesh out the supporting cast in the opera, which takes takes about the same amount of time as the film or the play. But because sung dialogue always takes longer, um, it's much more introspective in a way where the characters are going to sing about how they feel. Um, I must also uh, draw attention to the fact that I don't feel like this is a, a coincidence in a, in a literal, I mean, it's a, it's a coincidence literally, but not a figurative coincidence in the fact that the three Verdi operas based on Shakespeare, this and his last two operas, Otello and Falstaff, um, involve the same source material of Wells's three. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And, right. uh, though, though Falstaff is a uh, Merry Wise of Windsor adaptation, um, that opera greatly borrows from Henry IV and V um, in the same way that Chimes at Midnight is um, Wells's own lifelong um, dalliance with the combined Falstaff mythos over the mm-hmm. several history plays and one comedy. And I greatly recommend um, anybody who's interested in Shakespeare explore that opera, which I think is probably the greatest opera libretto and maybe the greatest opera of all time um, in terms wow. of uh, wow. what they did. And um, the Cambridge companion to Falstaff is essential in exploring the, the decade long um, collaboration between um, Verdi and Boito, his librettist, who was also a composer as they felt like they had to match Shakespeare. And truly, I think they fixed Merry Wives, which is a weak play, uh, by incorporating all that extra material from the Henry plays. And uh, when I staged Falstaff, I included Chimes at Midnight clips in the sound design, mm. just out of my own uh, morbid fascination <laughs> with these two, two cup, cup groups. Yes. Um, the, only, the, the only other Falstaff, uh, so Macbeth I know, is Arthur Sullivan's... Um, music for a uh, stage production, which is also quite compelling uh, incidental music he wrote uh, to be performed in by an orchestra while the production commences. This, this might seem like a silly question, but um, does, does Verdi do the same thing with Falstaff that Wells did by making him like the central protagonist? Yes. Uh, uh, the only, only difference is it's following um, the, the, the elements of it borrowed from the Henry plays are textual and there's a like a good example is in the very first scene uh he's fighting with other people in the inn and then has a big monologue a big aria in the sequence which is boito's italian version of the um the honor monologue on the battlefield in henry four part one 
And um, and the other reason is just it, the the character of Falstaff feels so much more human in the Henry plays than he does in Merry Wives, which is um, a quite a cheap farce. And um, so I think that's the real connection there. Unfortunately, the, the play doesn't directly involve the Henry mythos. So uh, when I directed it, I set it as if it's existing in some sort of purgatory between life and death, because uh, scholars have always struggled with the fact that um, based on textual references and the characters that appear, uh, there is no possible way you can put Merry Wives of Windsor in the chronology of the history plays. It can't fit like th- that Falstaff can't be the same Falstaff because of various uh, plot holes that would introduce. So um, I almost directed it as if the opera is Falstaff kind of remembering his Henry past on his way to death and the rejection from Hal and all of those components and how much of that scans is up to an audience that you'd have to ask them six years ago what they thought. But um, <laughs> it definitely made made uh, me appreciate both the opera and the film Chimes at Midnight uh, so much. But anyway, I, I if you check out Verdi's Macbeth and that recording, I think uh, you will find some enlightening material. And if you don't have your, your like a, if, you're, if, you're, if you don't have your hair standing on end during the big chorus numbers, like the witch's opening or the discovery of Duncan's death, which is a tour de force, um, like um, what they call a, like a Shana or a, a, a concertado, which is anytime the, a whole cast is singing at the same time, what's going on, but it's sort of all stunned simultaneously. Uh, the plot comes to a halt to explore the collective psyches of the characters involved. And those sequences in, in Verdi, in all of his operas, but particularly the middle operas, um, are his the finest moments in each, in my opinion. Wow. Well, I've got some new pathways to examine <laughs> and maybe some new notes to add to the uh, the show notes page there. So uh, that's a really fascinating uh, yeah, digression, if you will. Yeah, uh, but but definitely... Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, yeah. and I will I will follow up on some of these recommendations. This, this is all new stuff to me, but I'm yeah I've been living in this world of Macbeth for the past few weeks, uh, kind of very intentionally, and I I don't necessarily want to break the spell quite yet. So <laughs> it'll be kind of fun to explore some some new territory here. Um, let's maybe turn the the focus back a little bit more to maybe more familiar territory to some of our listeners as far as cinematic versions. Um, Brad, you just watched the Wells version what, today, right? This afternoon. I did, I did. Uh, what are some of your quick thoughts and how does uh, this version, uh, Polanski's, you know, complement or contrast with what Wells put out there? Um, I think the, the contrast between the two is like really severe um wells uh, as i had mentioned uh polanski's version sort of um wants to make uh a medieval life your everyday whereas wells does not have those goals wells um he he contains his entire film um inside this one giant sound stage and i mean this film uh, people have always said oh he had no money that's why it looks like crap but like I think he had, there's like, I mean, there's always a method to whatever Wells does. And here um, it's, it's this trap. Like you feel like everyone is contained in this sort of like um, mountainside nightmare. It's almost as if like a Gustav Dory etching has come to life and he set it in a stage uh, and he recreated it in a stage. There's smoke always on the edge of everything. And um, the costumes match the performance but they're so over the top in fact like 
uh, a lot of it reminded me because you had mentioned William how there uh, sorry or was it David that there's more of like a spirituality in Wells's version of the depiction of the witches as opposed to Polanski's and I think Wells really runs with that there's a lot of like Christian versus Satanism imagery that is going mm-hmm. on in this version um not only do we get things like Macduff um uh, constantly being visually aligned with the Celtic cross um, constantly. But but uh, uh, Macbeth, uh, Wells' depiction of Macbeth, um, gets a crown that has these grotesque horns. Um, uh, like first it's a square crown and it has, there's this great shot when he's on the throne where it's behind him and it's all in silhouette and you just these horns just pierce the screen as you know Lady Macbeth and all of the subjects are sort of scattered in front of it, um, and then it really ramps up to the end, to the climax when he's got like this full spiky crown everywhere, covered in smoke. There's a great high angle shot of him amongst like blood and mud and the rocks, rocks, and it really looks like a Dore version of like Dante's Inferno. And I think that is um, that's sort of in keeping with uh, or the best example, sorry, of the differences between what um, Polanski is sort of set out to do here uh, with his film in giving you sort of a uh, medieval world as your world versus what Wells is doing, which is this sort of enormous. I use the word uh, Wagner like earlier Mm -hmm. but um maybe i'm wrong Uh, william you are the master of opera but (laughs) that is what i what is definitely i feel that everything here is ramped up to 11 there's some great stuff too like like the murder of duncan is all done in one continuous shot that that shifts its main character from Macbeth to lady Macbeth to the night porter to mcduff um and aligns itself with uh the 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 owls and the thunder and the daggers and the banging of the door. All of this is, uh, is just Wells at 11, just his, his ingenious of how to get the most bang out of every shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like they're, they're taking the story out of time and history and, and the real world, but they're kind of at this transcendent plane uh, where it's, it's symbolic it's gestural it's it's epic you know um on a on a low budget but but the visuals are so striking and the staging really is almost kind of like this this dreamlike vision of of kind of elemental forces mm-hmm. coming into conflict with each other so yeah that was my takeaway from that if, well. if i may if i may start use now that we have opened wells <laughs> to the conversation yeah. i think that i think that for me i mean wells for me is um i mean i I guess he's the greatest filmmaker who ever lived. And uh, and I won't rest until I've seen every piece of footage he's ever been involved with. It's like that kind of obsession when you become a Wells person. And um, the this Macbeth, just I grow more appreciation for it every time I see it. And though I think I liked both films much more than I liked them the last time I saw them both, um, the things that you just mentioned, Brad, are all things that I think um, make me enjoy the text uh, more, even if it's completely different than the text should be, or even if it's completely rearranged. He's added a new character 
um, played by uh, played by later uh, uh, Alfred on Adam West Batman. Um, he has a lot of people in this who show up. Dan O'Hurley is uh, uh, from RoboCop is uh, McDuff, and um, uh, and interestingly, McDuff shows up already. Definitely someone who hates Macbeth, which I love in Wells's version. He shows up and he's like he's there to see the king, and he just feels suspicious of Macbeth right away for for reasons that are clear from backstory so even then there's at least a little bit of lived in backstory inherent in that show and whereas terence baylor shows up uh, blissfully unaware of duncan and Macbeth and any possible uh conspiracy but anyway um the shot you mentioned brad which is probably the best moment of the whole film i think is that fantastic shot looking up towards duncan's chamber um was completely cut and rearranged in the second and for a long time, more available version of the film. So if you read any of the articles from that literature film journal, um, that a lot of them discredit the Wells film or consider it like he did an experiment or a failed experiment. Um, they all mention the narration, which starts the film, which only exists in the shortened butchered version. Oh. And the thing I've noticed is that um, this is a film that due to the fact that the wrong version was available, has not gained the reputation I think it ought to have. So it's touch of evil again. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And now that we're all able to see it, perhaps there's still the learning curve of Shakespeare. But this is, I really hate that the Olive edition has yellow subtitles, which infuriates me. Um, Because I think that Shakespeare Shakespeare films, (laughs) watching them with subtitles is is never a bad idea if the text is new to you. And uh, I I will admit that if I can now make my negative comparison for the Plansky film, um, one problem I have with Polanski is that the text is sometimes unclear. And I think of a couple of important examples. Um, there's a moment in the beginning when the witch, witches are talking to them and they're revealing what's going to happen to Banquo. And I noticed here there's, there's a few amendments to the text. Um, for example, there's a moment about autumn that's changed to May because the cast is younger. Bologna's bridegroom and Ross's lines is changed to Bologna's bridegroom, the great Macbeth or whatever, because some people can interpret Bologna's bridegroom in that line to mean Macduff, which makes more sense because it's about who killed the thing or who who usurped the thane of Cawdor in the big fight. Um, and this scene, I think, has the most notable change, which is the line is thou shalt get kings, though thou shalt be none. And it's changed to thou shalt beget kings because people assumed maybe that get wouldn't be clear enough. That seems like a Okay, 11 syllables in the line. No one cares as long as people understand it. Uh, I, I think that it works out in the bargain, though, because weird is pronounced weird. Uh, the word should have an uh, umlaut over the I because it's it should be pronounced with two syllables. And if you look at any of the lines, the weird sisters are involved in it's a two-syllable word. So this film kind of neutralizes some of those vagaries, and I, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm okay with it. My problem is that the witch who says, thou shalt beget kings and thou shalt be none, um, is saying it while facing the we, like all the way in the wilderness, and it's such an inaudible line. And uh, when Lady Macbeth says "infirm of purpose," she sort of swallows the vowels and goes "infirm of purpose." And if I didn't know many of the lines of the play, I think I wouldn't understand uh, Polanski's version. And the main cause of this is the terrible uh, fidelity of the ADR and voiceover. And the strange thing to me is you use ADR. I mean, the voiceover is going to be the soliloquies regardless, but you're going to use the ADR when for some reason the source audio wasn't up to par or you needed to. There's there's some, when Terrence Baylor runs out as Macduff from Duncan's chamber, you hear two different Terrence Baylors back to back, one from the set and one from the uh, do, the looping session. And he like it doesn't work because 
the fidelity of this, just like we talked about this with Fiddler, David, is yeah. how the ADR always sounds bad in 1971. It always has like crunched consonants and it just never feels quite so clean as the guy holding the boom mic on set. And it infuriates <laughs> me to no end. There are scenes that go back and forth between uh, ADR and set audio and the set audio in Polanski's film is always cleaner and always sounds better. And now Macbeth by Orson Welles was done entirely with pre-recorded audio with the exception of the sleepwalking scene. Then they um, overdubbed it again later, but everybody's actually performing to their own pre-recorded audio. So everybody's performances, they said it felt kind of stifling, but it meant an exactitude that Wells could record the performance he wants as a radio man, and then they go into the film studio and then achieve what they want. Um, the sleepwalking scene was a Jeanette Nolan innovation. She said, I'd rather be able to do this live. So she was given that luxury. Um, but the audio in, in, when you're listening to the actors in Orson's version, they are clearly more stage trained because they don't swallow the vowels in the same way as John Finch and um, what's your name do? Uh, Francesca uh, Annis. Yeah, yeah, so they, there tends to be, like, I I, I, the, I really love John Finch. I mean, I'm a big frenzy head. Uh, and <laughs> I, I really appreciate their performances, but I don't think that they, they, they don't bellow and boom like these more old-fashioned radio and theater actors are doing. And the, old, more, the more old-fashioned delivery is clearer. It just is. And um, I appreciate that about that big 10 minute scene, which in the abridged version is all chopped up and it's, and, and the purpose of such a scene is completely disregarded. Um, so I, I struggle a little bit with one reputation of the Wells version, which has sort of been misattributed because people have seen the wrong one, but also struggle with my own self-conflict of, well, would I rather have the more texturally faithful version, which even with all the extra things we get to see is arguably Polanski's. Or would I rather have, to me, which is the more commanding performance of the text that allows me to hear the text better? Uh, I think Polanski going in and out of uh, um, voiceover for the soliloquies in some moments is quite distracting and um, a bit kind of dramaturgically unsound. Why would this one moment, I would rather them just be speaking the whole time and not have it be overdubbed and get to see the actor act and not watch them brood and hear them at another moment in time. See, and I think the insanity of those soliloquies and the theatricality of them is embraced by Wells in turning his his show into something that is um, unlike uh, any other film or or theater version. I think Polanski wants to turn it into a film, and um, whereas Wells wants to turn it into an Orson Welles film, <laughs> which is maybe the distinction. Do you do you think that the internal soliloquies hurt? Polanski's version because um, his version is so grounded in uh, like a realism that that would be un unreal for us to actually hear someone's thoughts spoken out loud. It's what's interesting. I was thinking about this a lot, and and it's because there's one scene where John Finch goes in and out of it within the same soliloquy. That's, that's probably the where, knife or the 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 yeah, dagger. It's some, right? Yes, and and I think that like if, if the character's alone, I think that's one thing. Wells even kind of does it because there's even a moment in Wells where he he um it's really it's actually kind of awkward but it's classic wells where when he learns he's thane of Cawdor, he walks towards the camera and then has a overdubbed he does it in the wells film it is a one moment where he's being overdubbed and wells is being rock and rolled because they didn't shoot a long enough take so there's like you know three seconds of I wells standing that. There and it just shakes back and yeah forth. they just rewind and fast forward the right tape. 
but then he then, and then he returns back to um the, the people who came to him but um and it works in wells film in a way because of how like it's like feels like more of a direct address even though it's obfuscated by that that convention of the um film overdub I, I, I think that if Polanski's film had had everybody say the words whenever they said them, um, it might have been distracting, but it doesn't happen in front of other people often enough for it to feel as justifiable as I think he felt it was. I just wanted to uh, mention before we move on from Wells that his version also retains some of the voodoo aspects of his famous um, play that he put on at ha- in Harlem, was it? That was the all... That's right, mm-hmm. the, voodoo, the Voodoo Macbeth. Yeah. Um, as right. the witches uh, employ a voodoo doll that is a representation of Macbeth. So one wonders just how much uh, stylistically he folded from his play adaptation into his movie adaptation. Well, quite a lot. And even then, he had recently done it in Utah um, with the same cast he was about to do it with in the film. So when he did the Voodoo Macbeth, that was in the 30s, and he does it again just before filming his film in the, in the mid-late 40s and um, is able to cook those actors a little bit. And um, by all accounts, his his Slater production, the, I guess we can say the white production, um, retained a lot of some of those innovations to the structure and tone and um, spiritual implications, even if he removed it from Aiti and turned it back into um, a Scottish um, expressionist nightmare. And apparently that production had the same, I mean, the Voodoo Macbeth, you can watch as um, Dave was speaking on the early portion about mm-hmm. the Olive edition. There's an excerpt from the end of the Voodoo Macbeth. All that survives of it is the very end. Oh. And it's so quick. It's such a quick, you can see it's on YouTube too. You I mean, see. I have the Olive uh, version, so I'll, I'll have that a look. So def- yeah, definitely look at it. Um, and um, there's, uh, it has the same sort of set with a gate and then a big staircase. It's the simple version of it, but it's, it's basically the same arrangement. And um, in the same way that Wells did his, uh, his Falstaff thing and his uh, Big Kings story. He did his Kings plays back when he was in, in uh, basically the equivalent of high school in his, in his private school. And he was trying to do that same play his whole life. Um, I recommend those, those Olive Edition. Joseph McBride's commentary is excellent. And um, you can see that it's the sort of thing where um, for him, this was a lifelong journey to create this. And I think that it's hard not to feel that power in the film in a way where um, the Polanski one is just a really good naturalistic and brutal take on the text that um, is st- I mean, stunning. We didn't talk about Gilbert Taylor, one of the most uh, accomplished cinematographers of the seventies, but also shot some of the most interesting films of the forties and fifties. But uh, this is somebody who shot a hard day's night and star Wars and mm. this and Macbeth, the Polanski Macbeth. I mean, it's and frenzy as well. So he's got <laughs> such a career. Gilbert yeah. Taylor. That is quite a resume uh, there. Yeah. The, the exteriors and uh, I mean, the exteriors in Polanski's outshine the interiors by a very wide margin in terms of their beauty. And the Macbeth that Wells did is entirely interior and entirely beautiful because of the fact that he's controlling everything in, in this way of, of um, Wellsian beauty. So uh, I mean, the, look, look at, look at moments like all of the, the almost Eisensteinian uh, uh characterization feels like something out of Alexander Nevsky. I was just going to say that, that like Wells, uh, Macbeth, and also his other two Shakespeare's film, um, he does a lot with the visual design of like, you know, spears and really long crosses and all that stuff that's straight out of Eisenstein. 
Right. And, and you just feel like that even though Polanski's Macbeth is a class act, um, it's still a playboy production. And, (laughs) and I, and I honestly think that that, that is like a, like a, as Hugh Hefner has been proven to have not done some good things in his time too. And oh yeah, uh, like it, it does sour my taste a little bit to feel like, um, I mean, they, they wanted um, Francesca Annis to, to pose nude, right. And they, they, they wanted her to pose nude for playboy. Like for the magazine. To, right. right. To have some little peep shots. There. So right. you can feel, you feel, even though Hugh Hefner in one of the features is, is coming off, like we want this to be, uh, we want to do something unusual. Yeah. I still, I don't, I don't trust the guy. So, <laughs> Uh, I, no, that, that's posturing for I, you know I, right. reputation of intellectual credibility and all of that. So, right? so I think I think Macbeth probably stands as as one of one of the great uh, Shakespeare movies for people to see if they want to see they want to see and understand the full play um, because the cuts are minimal. The the biggest cuts of the material are are is the the Hecate scene, which isn't even Shakespeare anyway, most likely. And the songs that the witches sing, which even then are most likely not Shakespeare. So um, the the abridgments are minimal, and the faithfulness to the point where Wells is like, I can't even bother with all these extra things. I'm just going to create a character and do what mm-hmm. I want. The Blansky film, I think, is Tynan is such a such a Shakespeare expert was about how can we do the Shakespeare play, and because these two are so different in their approach, I consider them complementary. And um, and I said this on Letterboxd, but it's pretty much like the Polanski is lesser than Orson, but greater. It's the only way I can describe it, because they both fitty fit each other and they both help each other out. I think the, if I have to give an edge, it has to always be to Orson, which I think is the more profound work of cinematic art. But as Macbeth films, I think they're both essential. Agreed. Very good. I, I really love these uh, you know, this detailed take. I think this is nice bonus material for the <laughs> podcast. Listeners get a pretty solid breakdown of the Wells version as well as Polanski's. Uh, maybe a little bit more succinctly, are there any other uh, film versions? I mean, I know, I think both of you have referenced uh, Throne of Blood, the Kurosawa um, you know, mid fifties version. Yeah, that's uh, the one we we've talked missed. about that a little bit in the first segment as yeah, well. Yeah, that's the one we haven't mentioned yet. Sort of the the elephant in the room. Um, yes, uh, I love Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Um, it is what I think one of his best films. Um, it does make some significant changes from the text. Obviously, it doesn't. Uh, it's not. It's not Shakespeare's words. It is a uh, you know a rewrite, a page one rewrite of 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 the the text, um, and also things like there's no Macduff character. Uh, uh, the character of Macbeth in Kurosawa's version is uh, brought down by um, his own subjects. Uh, how poorly he is ruling once he's on top. Um, they turn on him and assassinate him in a spectacular bow and arrow scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's epic. It's it's you know the the pageantry and all of that is 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 pretty incredible. Um, but again, yeah, it, it it's it's using basically the the plot structure of Macbeth and uh, adapting it to a Japanese context, which I think is very effective, and I think it it actually. Uh, sort of underscores the fact that the, these themes and and these these uh, sad and and sorry tales of of ruthless ambition really do you know uh, reach across all societies all civilizations. Uh, so yeah, that's a great one. Um, 
yeah, maybe we can start to wrap things up a little bit here. I mean, we did talk a little bit about some of the more recent renditions, the Patrick Stewart version of 2010. Uh, Trevor and I were both very admiring and appreciative of that. I think Patrick Stewart's performance of Macbeth, uh, that role is is really quite impressive, quite, quite a marvel of uh, just really bringing that character and all of all of the complexities uh to, to the forefront um uh, and and uh his his partner is lady Macbeth. i can't remember her name is right it off kate the bat fleetwood, is it um is that the is kate fleetwood is it yeah that's that uh, yeah right yeah mm-hmm. the inter- that's another good example i haven't seen the film yet but they it's a it's a film version from the their stage right they, yeah. they, had, mm-hmm. they had performed it together so yeah um, I think it won Tony Awards um, back in the the latter part of the aughts, and they they put it on film. And it's it's got uh, John Lobinger kind of t- t- describes it as a as a, a horror movie aesthetic, which it really is. It's it's set in more of a contemporary type of context, but the you know the special effects and the and the, the supernatural element and just the eeriness of it, uh, as well as the brutality and the violence, is is. Yeah, pretty off the charts, uh, but but very striking and, and very vivid. It, it created a very powerful impression on me. So uh, I highly recommend that. Where can we see that version? It's on Prime Video, uh, Amazon. You know, it's it's right there if you've got a Prime account, and it, it may be available on other streaming services as well. I didn't really look too much further into it since Prime had it for me, and I am a member there. So um, it's it's pretty accessible uh, there's there's another popular one which i haven't seen which is bela tars um tv version oh uh, i'm which, not even aware yeah, of me that. neither no. which um it's it doesn't have quite a lot of traction if you look at uh, like letterboxd so it may mm-hmm. be something that, that just hasn't had the distribution in ages and uh, uh it's from 1982 and uh, uh I, i'd be very curious to to give that a look and i have seen the like i said the one with fassbender and coach mm-hmm. yard which I remember not being too enthused by when I saw it, but looking at some shots of it now, I mean, it looks austere and beautiful and kind of brutal, but your, your description of it kind of reminded me of the fact that it is still also a little bit, um, I mean, I, it's worth noting the guy who directed the film also directed the uh, adaptation of Assassin's Creed. So I think that (laughs) like you can feel that when you watch it, you can feel the video game (laughs) director, Uh, but you look at the shots of like inside the big churches and whatnot, and it does look quite stunning. And, you, I do appreciate any film in 2015 that's going to be beautiful Shakespeare, you know, images now and then. And I just, I just can't remember. I know David Thewlis was Duncan. I remember, mm-hmm. like, I, I like seeing seeing him anywhere, but I don't remember. Yeah. It. I don't remember how he did. So, no, right. um, but if, 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 if oh, sorry, good, continue. If you like just Letterboxd or IMDb Macbeth, you're going to find so many versions, variety of, <laughs> you know, uh, some are footage of stage, and some are other ones we didn't talk about uh, the george schaefer one as well which is a um a hallmark um tv version type one which was maurice evans and judith anderson which i would love to see because i love the two of them so much it gets a passing mention in one of the articles i, I linked to you from jstor and uh, mm-hmm. has nine views on letterboxd <laughs> so it's something that i feel like has got to be somewhere someone's got to have it but um and we're we're due for a new version actually from one of the cohen brothers i think um, just wrapped up principal photography on the tragedy of right. Macbeth. So, oh, really? Yeah. The Coen brothers are too. I, I don't know if it's both brothers man. or if it's just okay. Joel. I think it's just Joel, but I'm not 100% okay. sure on that. Um, but yeah, he was filming it earlier this year 
And then it was shut down with COVID. And then mm-hmm. they had just recently been able to, because they were almost finished and they were just had been able to uh, finish the last, I guess, few days that they needed to under, you know, COVID, uh, new COVID rules, of course. Um, hmm. but, Do you know anything about the setting? Is it is it a, kind of a, a historically faithful or are they kind of putting it in a different context? I'm so fascinated that it looked that I up. don't know. I don't know much more uh, okay. other than that. Yeah. But um, And I, all I know is it's Denzel and uh, Francis McDormand. Oh, wow. Which oh. That's, that's a very attractive uh, lead, lead couple. I think they'll, they'll do a really interesting job. And I'm very interested to see uh, the witches are credited as being played by Catherine Hunter who is a very notable Shakespearean actress um, who is known for her portrayals of male roles. And of course the witches would have originally been played by men. Um, they would have been male roles as hinted by Banquo's line of them having beards. beards it's quite yeah. likely that, that they originally <laughs> appeared with full beards hmm. in reality. Um, so I'm interested to see Catherine Hunter, who, who is known for her quite um, gender non-specific performances um, of Shakespeare credited as presumably all of the witches <laughs> Um, I would I that's worth the price of admission alone if that ends up being the case, because hmm. it'd be hard to see her sharing the role, knowing her reputation in the Shakespeare community. Um, so I'm quick, quick, curious. And Brendan Gleeson as King Duncan is also quite a good choice. And I appreciate um, any film that gives King Duncan something to do. I think um, one benefit of Polanski's film is that King Duncan really feels like a real person. Whereas when it's uh, it's Erskine Sanford in um, Wells's, who is a Citizen Kane um, alum. And he shows up and basically says two lines and, and that's all we really get out of it. So, hmm. All right, guys, well, we have gone deep into this and it's <laughs> been a, an epic conversation, very suitably appropriate for the, the scale and the caliber of the subject matter at hand. So I want to thank you guys very much for uh, all of your insights. It's always a delight to, to spend some time talking with you guys. Uh, but yeah, we're, 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 well over the three hour mark <laughs> when I put the two segments together. Uh, hopefully listeners will have gleaned a lot of value uh, from listening in this conversation. So next episode is going to be Harold and Maud. That will be the last feature film of season three for Criterion Reflections. And I'll do another little kind of compendium dealing with some of the short films that were released throughout the year 1971. So the, uh, the light is at the end of the tunnel <laughs> this long season that I think has taken me the better part of two years to get through uh, is uh, kind of winding down. Uh, so we'll be getting back at you pretty soon. Uh, but yes, indeed, uh, this, this uh, journey into the heart of darkness with Macbeth is run its course. Uh, the witching hour is uh, over. <laughs> That's right. The the cauldron is bubbling down, and uh, uh, the 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 mists are parting, and uh, we return back to our normal lives, wondering if it was all just a dream. So, thank you, guys. It's been a great time. I look forward to uh, any feedback you guys have, uh, listeners, on on our conversation today. Give us your thoughts. What are your favorite Macbeths out there? Uh, we look forward to hearing any thoughts you may have. So, until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.